Hello, and welcome back to Meditation Summer Vacation. I'm Erin. I'm a professor, English professor in Mississippi, and we are back today with uh, part two of our Good Omens podcast um, with episode four, fat Saturday morning fun time, five, the doomsday option, and the last one, the very first day of the end of the world. And I'm here with... Oh, yes. Hello. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Sorry, I zoomed past your usual introduction point, and then you are like... <laughs> That's okay. When do I say it's me? <laughs> it's summer vacation. We don't have to be organized. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't have to use my brain. <laughs> yeah. What brain? <laughs> um, so... Yes, we are thrilled to be back to talk about this uh, excellent run of episodes. I, and I enjoyed the the watching this um, this series the first time I watched it, but the second time through, I have to say, it has been like so much better. It's just been like a joy. The second half in particular, there's things that you catch when you know how things wrap up and play out that like the first time around, I didn't catch at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Absolutely. Yes, which is always like that's a sign of a really well crafted um, series. When on the rewatch, you go like, "Oh my god, that! Mm-hmm. Oh my god, that!" You know, where like things that didn't even ping as right. being setups for something else, you now realize were sort of setups, and that that you had sort of subliminally put together. So, yes, well yeah. Done. <laughs> I think to some extent, it's like until you watch something a second time knowing sort of like all the twists and all the reveals and things like that and it still holds up it's like that's when you know it's really like that they they laid that groundwork and did their homework like if it only works when you're like taken by surprise by something you know and then you watch it again and you're like well now that i know that's gonna happen it kind of falls flat yeah but yeah but this was just like you just get more and more out of it each time i am just like i have really 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 enjoyed this series Hmm. as have i so I think we're going to start with talking about the horseman, yes? Yes, yeah, the horseman and the delivery guy, I think, yeah. um, is a good place to start. So we, so we got War and Famine in the first, the first half, which so we talked about them last week. And then this week we got two very interesting new ones. We got Pestilence sl- slash Pollution, um, about whom I know Aaron has some thoughts, and Death. <laughs> but we got our first sort of actual humanizing look at um at the the courier at his sort of actual human life he got in he got a name his name is leslie and he has a wife <laughs> named Maud. and we saw their house and he's such an interesting kind of tiny little character that i think like so many people in this in this story where he he both sort of is and is not kind of supernatural i mean like he he is a perfectly ordinary human and yet there is something about the sort of very specific kind of metaphysical weirdness of his job and his just very chill acceptance of it. And the fact that that's never explained or addressed, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Like, he's just like, well, I gotta just, you know, zip on over in my little van to a war zone and hand <laughs> a sword to this lady. I don't ask questions, you know, somebody's got a sign for it. Tra-la-la. It's a delightful little, you know, kind of running gag. And he's such a He's a very likable actor, too, but it was interesting just sort of that, like, I think leading up to this one with kind of how he ends up encountering death that we sort of, like, got to know him a little bit first, I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's almost like his his supernatural power is just being, like, 
the most British person in existence in that sense. Yeah. Sort of like when confronted with something like truly like a bunch of strangers doing something truly bizarre, his reaction is like, hi, okay, I'm going to pretend this isn't happening just to get through the awkwardness. Sign for the package. All right. Well, bye. You know, like, <laughs> it's like his, his, like his obliviousness is just his sheer, like Britishness. <laughs> strange people i am very uncomfortable my first response is just to like politely pretend they aren't weird <laughs> and then just go home and be like well i had the strangest day at work anyway yeah exactly <laughs> just tell mom like so there's some odd people today anyway <laughs> it was sweet like how how in love he and uh mod were but i think which is you know the way of kind of like really like giving some pathos to the moment when the truck hits him and uh you know and he dies and when we see the the sort of note that he leaves but yeah i did i did want to talk about some about pestilence who has now become pollution or or is different different person than pollution i think there's something also really interesting about um you know what uh adam says at the end which is basically where you know only three of one of them like death is real but the other three are are sort of projections of the human imagination because like what they, what they really are like quite literally is personifications. You know, they are a sort of abstract concept that have been personified that have sort of taken on like human form and human characteristics and, and are able to act and things like that. And, and there's something really, I like it, being the like literary nerd that I am, <laughs> you know, and they said that like, my brain sort of like perked up, especially so in my my specialty, which is 18th century uh, English poetry. Um, personification is like a huge, like, huge, huge thing. There's like t- there's personification all over the place in 18th century poetry, including poems that just you know are sort of built around like literally taking an abstract concept like a season or a mood or whatever and like making it into a person and then sort of like imagining that person doing things that that abstract concept would do. And it's something like like if if you ever made to read the preface to lyrical ballads by William Wordsworth like when you were in school, this is one of those things very famously that Wordsworth was like. Fuck personification. It's, it's too artificial, blah, blah, blah. But, um, so anyway, so anytime you get some like really, really literal personification like this, my, my 18th century professor braid goes like, ooh, ooh. Um, <laughs> but I, I sort of like this idea. And I think like thematically, very interestingly, it, it folds in nicely with the theme that I, that kind of, I feel like picks up steam over the course of the second half of the series, which is this idea that like, that imagination is, like the unique gift of humans for the most part humans or at least a thing that like kind of sets humans and and like and a handful of others like Crowley apart from angels and demons this ability to make something real out of like to to create something in your head and then manifest it into reality and like that that turns out to be you know the kind of like make it real like that the voices that Adam hears is interesting like it sort of maybe gives an answer to the reason why like why do the angels and the demons need an antichrist in the first place to have Armageddon why can't they just fight this war when they want to and like the one answer seems to be something like literally like because they don't have imaginations they lack the ability to to conceive of something to imagine something and make it into a reality and so they have to have they have to like you know the antichrist 
has to be human, has to become a human, has to be partly human, has to be put into, you know, some kind of like the human vessel in order for for him, therefore, to have that unique ability to kind of imagine these things into existence. And so, you know, so it's like, it's very interesting to me to think about like, the way that they kind of play with that and, and to think about um, war and famine and especially pollution as being personifications, being concepts that human beings sort of make into to, to some kind of person or being capable of action or to like concepts to which we attribute action. In this literalized way. Cause if you think about it, like, this is, this is actually how we talk about things. You know, we talk about like pollution kills XYZ. And like, we, if you really think about what that means, pollution kills, pollution does X, pollution does Y, pollution is killing, you know, X number of fish in the ocean. Well, like, think about where the agency of that goes. What is responsible for the killing? It's the pollution. But what is pollution? You know? Like literally what you're talking about is it's it's like it's you know certain objects or or chemicals or whatever entering an environment that that leads to the death of certain animals. So like plastic pollution kills you know fish and aquatic creatures because plastic winds up in the ocean and they eat it, you know, or they breathe it. So like in that sense the pollution is killing. But there's something there's this like this sort of logical disconnect when you say pollution kills, you're sort of attributing that the the agency, the action you're saying like this this sort of abstract idea pollution is doing this thing. The pollution isn't the doing thing that's really doing anything. You know what I mean? Like it is in the sense that like the plastic in the turtle's stomach is why the turtle can't eat and it, it starves dis- despite having a full stomach. But the actual agency, the actual actions that cause that to happen are humans. And the, the difficulty with talking about that is that that agency and those actions are dis- are, are hugely distributed. It's not one person rolling up to the beach you know, with like a trillion tons of plastic and being like, lol, I'm going to kill some turtles today. Right. You know, it's it's not even a billion people going to the store and buying plastic bottles of soda or water or whatever, really. It's the entire system that produces those bottles and sort of organizes life in such a way that you can and will buy those plastic bottles that you that you feel like you don't have any choice but to buy those buy those plastic bottles that it's it's increasingly difficult to avoid you know and even if you do personally choose not to um you know to to have any reusable plastics in your life the manufacturing of them still exists you know the the sort of the the so so like it's a kind of like it's a way that i think we use Personification allows us to conceive of things and grasp them more easily, um, but it can also sort of more troublingly allow us to ignore or or sort of misconceive the nature of actual problems. And war is a kind of a similar thing. Like war is another like huge concept that we talk about. Like war is a force that does things, right? Like war costs the death of X number of people. You know, like, World War II killed blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, like, people die in a war. 
but like war itself, <laughs> um, other than at, that, then as a kind of concept that we talk about having agency doesn't do anything. Famine kills such and such number of people. So it's interesting to me to kind of like look at these characters in this show as, as a piece of this sort of increasing world where like what's going on is that you have all these kind of like seemingly difficult, intractable, large distributed problems getting sort of coalesced down into these forces of evil, you know, these sort of like personified forces of evil who seem unstoppable and who seem single-mindedly dedicated to this one thing. And and sort of like the, the show really like grabbing onto not the reality, like, or sort of being able to ha- hold space for both like we have imagined them into reality. We have imagined them into being and therefore they're real. But we've imagined them into reality and therefore they're also not real and we can unimagine them anytime we want. You know what I mean? Like I think that's a really, really interesting yeah. and, and like instructive – you know, it's like cool and it makes for like a cool story. But I think there's actually something really, really profound there and, and important in sort of the way that personification simultaneously does make something real and also remains a kind of figure – that that doesn't have uh, like at another level doesn't have reality. Yeah, like it these are all things that human beings do to each other that have expanded to become something that is bigger than than any one individual's action. The sort of running theme of what imagination does and sort of the power that it gives humans that the other, you know, the heaven and hell don't have. The human characters are the only ones who are capable of behaving in in unpredictable ways. Something that happens in the fourth episode is we sort of get the the first real mention of one of the kind of little parallels that become so important at the end that that they're linked to the children. That that in mm-hmm. um in the mind of Adam, like when he says like I have friends coming and he, you know, he he sort of flies up into the middle of the tornado in the middle of this um really, you know, creepy and dramatic scene where he's kind of holding his friends hostage. But like that's sort of the first moment that that it's sort of introduced to us that thematically, you know, those four characters and these four characters are connected in some way. And so the way they're defeated at the end, there's something there's something in each of those children that resists the personification of that concept. Mm-hmm. It's the clearest, I think, with Pepper versus War, but with the boys too. You know, like that there's there's little tiny things all along the way embedded into their humanness as we've gotten to know them that are kind of the antidote for what that specific force kind of embodies in ways I thought were like really, you know, not just because it's like there's four of them here and four of them here, but like there's things about who they are, like who those kids are that made it possible for them to defeat those forces by imagining a way the world could be different. I mean, I think it's something like the possibility against inevitability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that, 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 which is almost a sort of like human versus, um, versus not human where, where the kind of single-mindedness of of the four horsemen, which is like, of course, they're single-minded. Like they are, they are personifications of concepts. Mm-hmm. Like their right. entire existence. They have one job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah like they have they have one ontology. They have one way of being. Like you are the personification of war. Of course, you can't like 
conceptualize the possibility of not war. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right, that, right, is, exactly, that would yeah. be like, mm-hmm. like as, as Pepper demonstrated, that would, that would negate your existence, you know? So, um, Mm-hmm. But but that's I think maybe with the children and I think like there's and that's one reason why children right is because like because they they both represent possibility and that they still have the 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 potential to grow up and be different from the adults who've you know like made the mistakes that got you there but also because they're kids and like kids in that way where they're like they're just less they've they've they haven't been so indoctrinated into the kind of like conventional wisdom of the world that they are capable of being like if people are like well that's just how it is they're like okay but why does it have to be you know like does we don't have to do this so i think uh, I, and i think there's something in the in the sort of especially in the second half of the show also and this kind of connects to when Aziraphale, um you know is talking to when um michael and uriel um and uh the other, the third, the third angel with the like non-angel name, um, come down to kind of like you know tell him to get his butt back up to heaven. Where Zerophil says like, you know, they're humans. Like they're what they do is make choices. That's the whole point. They're here to make choices. You know, and so like so so why we can keep going? We can just keep giving them choices. And I think when there are choices, there's possibility, right? Um, so I think I think it really does seem to me that it kind of comes down to something like. You have this one set of people, which are the four horsemen, but then also, you know, Gabriel and Beelzebub um, saying like, no, this is, you know, and Metatron being like, the point is not to avoid the war. The point is to win it. Like, we're saying like, well, this is inevitable. Like, of course, the apocalypse starts today, right on time. Like, this is like, this is just what happens. On the other hand, you have, you know, characters, mostly human, but also including Crowley and Aziraphale who, who are saying but aren't there other possibilities? Like, there are possibilities. The inevitable doesn't have to be inevitable. It's only inevitable because you refuse to look for other options. And so I think, you know, with with Adam too, there's that, that sort of moment where, they, where you're talking about when he's like being his most scary where where he's kind of like decided like, nope, this world is shit. Got to get rid of it. You know, like nothing to do. No other way to go. You know, like this is the only way. Like and and maybe like that's the most maybe that is like the definition of an of apocalypse, right? The definition of apocalypse is the end. There's no other choices. There's the end of possibility, and so the antidote to apocalypse is to say like, no, actually, hey, look at all those possibilities. <laughs> I was talking on I have a, a friend um on on Twitter who's a science journalist, and she there was an article that came out. This is maybe like a, like a month or so ago. That was some like. I didn't read it. Like climate change articles sometimes just give me like a lot of existential <laughs> anxiety. Yeah. I have to like schedule the times when I'm going to read them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on days when I also have therapy. <laughs> but this was one that was basically like, like the headline of it or so the sort of thesis basically was like, you know, like everything is worse than we thought and we have even less time than we thought. And and my friend, my friend Aaron, not you, a different Aaron, who was also an environmentalist. <laughs> She was saying, you know, like, as a science journalist, she was like, look, like, like, first of all, like, this particular article relied only on, like, it was like the worst case scenario of some sort of cherry picked study. It's like, it's not, it's not misleading and wrong in a like, lie kind of way, but it's giving you the worst case scenario. And she basically was like, look, like, 
the most dangerous thing right now actually is like resignation and cynicism like the the worst the worst thing you could possibly do if you you know if you're worried about like an environmental apocalypse is is decide we're so fucked that you stop trying you know and and mm-hmm. so like opening up conversation for like what are the things that we can do? What are the choices that we can make? What are the things that are within our power? Like, what are the, you know, what are the things that we could turn around if people did, you know, or different or countries did or whatever, you know, like X, Y, Z things in the next two years, five years, 10 years, like, that's how you make change. And by just sort of saying, like, in 25 years, we're all going to be dead. Like, that doesn't like, that's only true if you decide it's true and behave accordingly and give up right now. But it isn't mm-hmm. inevitable in a, in a sort of like black and white, factual, unavoidable kind of way, unless your behavior makes it true. And I found that really, actually, like, really, really encouraging that that she was saying, like, look, like, people, people who live in this field, you know, people who, who this is what they do, are, like, desperately trying to get the message through to people that there are hundreds of thousands of things, big and small, that we could be doing. And people will only be motivated to want to do those things if they feel like there's a possibility that that will actually move the needle. Yeah. And despair is like all the, even though it's like, it's, it's hard to avoid, but it isn't, <laughs> it isn't productive. Like it doesn't, it doesn't move anything forward. And I, and I was thinking about the lot, you know, like at like sort of watching, like watching the show and, and thinking about the way sort of in our, in our current political climate in some ways that I think are are fascinating and really moving, but also sort of make me really, I think make me really sad. Like the fact that it's young people really sort of being the face for a lot of these social movements and sort of advocating on behalf of problems that have, we've been stuck in the mud for a long time. Like I don't, I don't want it to be high school students who are leading the charge against gun violence, but it makes sense that they are. You know, like it, mm-hmm. it makes logical sense that like for, you know, for adults who are like, well, like, yes, it sucks, but the NRA has this chokehold on Congress. So you're never really going to get meaningful gun control passed that has any teeth to it. The most that you can do is kind of like, you know, a little bit longer waiting period here and a little bit, you know, like lower capacity magazines over here. And you sort of just like nickel and dime it, you know, and then 15 year olds are going, fuck all of you. Like, fuck you. We're dying mm-hmm. in our schools. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing with climate, I think, you know, where it's like, it's a lot of, mm-hmm. of younger people leading the charge of sort of like, okay, so what are we, how are we going to mitigate this? You know, how are we going to, how are we going to make it better? Because I think it is also like with climate, it's sort of the the fallacy of the either or fallacy. Like, you know, mm-hmm. all these reports coming out saying like, we can't avoid two degrees Celsius warming. Like there's like that ship has sailed and people being like, all right, then I guess five degrees it is like, fuck it. Life's over. It's the apocalypse. It's right. Like, okay. No. Like, yeah, like, okay, so we, we, a certain amount of warming, a certain number of these, like, really sort of adverse outcomes are pretty much baked in now. That doesn't mean that you might as well just throw in the towel and, like, lay down and, and just be like, well, we're gonna ride this straight to hell, you know, like, that's, that's not actually, like, there's a lot you can do in between, you know, like, there's a lot of, you Mm -hmm. can still make it better you can still you can still like improve potential outcomes and it's like it is really sad because i think both in terms of like the gun control thing with high schoolers and also with the climate um you know activism of young people you know 
it's because it's an existential threat to them in a way that it hasn't been to older folks, you know, like, I, because these are younger people looking at the world and looking at forecasts and thinking about how old they're going to be in 2050. You know, there's like a lot of people in their middle age who are going to be dead by then, you know, who are like, who can kind of like check out. If you're going to be like in your 40s or whatever, mm-hmm. if you're going to be like definitely still alive. If you're trying to figure out, do I even want to have kids? Like literally like one of the reasons that I, you know, I'm 37 and like, you know, been on the fence about kids for a while. But one reason why I sort of keep falling back on like, I don't think I want to have kids is because like, I don't know that I feel it feels completely ethical to have another child in this world right now, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, well, and that's like, some, like, they've, there's so many studies on that. Like, there's so many like younger yeah. people are having fewer and fewer children, partly because like, because of, of fears like that of like overpopulation and like, um, you know, like, is this a world you want to bring a child into, you know, but also just because like, it's hard to feel sexy when they feel like the world is ending. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and also and thinking about like, in 50 years, when you're, you know, when your kids are adults, like, is there even going to be a world for them to have like that kind of exactly, exactly. And I don't feel that, you know, this is not in, in, in any way in a sense where I'm sort of like, I'm I'm looking at other people who choose to have kids and being like, that was unethical. You know, it's just sort of like, for me personally, like, it being in a position of either choosing or not, or choosing, you know, to have a child or choosing not to have a child, when I imagine the world that, like, if I give birth to a child and they are going to live in this world, I can't, like, for me, like, I can't, I, I feel like I can't make that choice. But, you know, like, like, I have a streak of despair there, I guess. You know what I mean? But so, but to kind of... To, to bring it back to the show that we are ostensibly discussing, um, <laughs> the, um, you know, there's that moment when sort of between the sort of bit in, in episode four where we're introduced to pollution, specifically as having taken over for pestilence when pestilence retires. Yeah. It's kind of like that, which, which is a very, you know, it sort of, it registers the way in which over time, over the sort of span of the thousands of years that the four horsemen of the apocalypse have been sort of concepts in Western culture, the existential threats that face humanity have shifted. So like in the past, plagues were an existential threat. Like if you lived in Europe in the 14th century, then hell yeah, pestilence was an existential threat, you know, like two thirds of Europe died in the Black Plague. So like that's the existential threat. So but like, but now disease still exists, but is not an existential threat on the level of anthropogenic pollution and climate change, you know, so it's kind of registering like the ways that and if you think about um, the four horse or the three horsemen, not kind of death, because death is, you know, inevitable, actually inevitable, the one thing that is inevitable is individual organism death. Um, Unless you're a lobster, I guess they're theoretically uh, immortal um <laughs> but uh <laughs> that was a weird derail um <laughs> but uh but if you think about them as personifications as these are the forces they are they are the sort of like embodiment of concepts that humans create of things that humans do or make that threaten their own existence. You know, like these are all human, like war is a human behavior, right? Like famine is not always, but often a human behavior. You know, if you think about something like the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, that was an entirely human created 
agricultural environmental disaster. There was a drought, but the Dust Bowl happened because of because of specific farming practices. And and even famine, like in, in modern day world, famine. Any place where there is famine, it is basically human made or politically made because, like, we have it there. We produce enough calories, right? Exactly. To feed all the people on. We the have planet. enough food. It's just being hoarded. Exactly. It's just like we. So if anyone in the world is starving, it's because like human networks are failing. Pollution, same thing. You know, and and, and interestingly, I think there's there's a kind of shift there towards the kind of of the what what they call the Anthropocene, you know, which is the the geological period in which human beings are driving um sort of geological or planetary changes. But if you think about the sense in which like pestilence is actually not anthropogenic. Bacteria, viruses, they evolve, you know, they evolve in humans, they evolve with humans, but we don't actually – well, we didn't make them, you know. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the end of the world will come with a human-engineered virus. But, like, for, the, like, the Black Plague, we didn't make that. Like, it almost wiped us out, but it actually wasn't human-driven other than just sort of, like, being aided by the behaviors of human beings living in large groups, you know, in sort of individual areas. Um, and then tr- also moving around the world via via ships and that kind of thing. But it's not human made in the same way that like pollution is something that we absolutely did to ourselves. You know, like we like we our behaviors produced a situation where we have sort of created a threat to our very species survival. So the way in which kind of like pollution as a figure, as a member, really kind of for me, very interestingly, and very elegantly, very subtly kind of brings all of these, those issues together. Like this is, this is a, a personification in the sense of sort of like the human imagination bringing together all these things and calling them, naming them pollution and then giving that figure agency and then imagining it to be a person. So in that sense, it's kind of like human created through the imagination, but then also human created in the sense that this is the kind of figure for a bunch of processes and activities that we have done that has created something that has taken on a life of its own that is beyond our sort of like control. And it's sort of like linked in really interestingly to me with the moment when, you know, and I think it's also in episode four, you know, when the kids are kind of walking in the woods and Adam is like, it's like the build up to his sort of really like sort of becoming the Antichrist for a little bit where he says, Everywhere you look, there's all this environment going on, you know, and and everything is sort of falling apart. And it's really for this moment, to me, it's like this mo- poignant moment in, in Adam's kind of like very 10-year-old boy, inarticulate sort of way where like this is a child, uh, this is a child expressing something like climate dis- despair, basically. You know, this is like a 10-year-old mm-hmm. boy in a moment of despair, looking around the world at, at all of the things that the generations before him have done and looking around at, you know, like things like... Like that report you were talking about where they're sort of like, hey, we only have 18 months to stop absolute disaster instead of 12 years. Everything's fucked, you know, or looking at like stories about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch or about plastic pollution and saying, you know, like it's over. Like we, people have ruined the world. The, the grownups have ruined everything. They've destroyed the world. They've destroyed the environment. They've made things so that they're going to end. So like, why not just like literally blow it all up and start over? Because because there's nothing else to do because the end is inevitable, you know. So it was this moment of sort of like, what if what if a kid who's experiencing, you know, climate change despair had the powers of the Antichrist, 
you know, to imagine mm-hmm. Armageddon into existence. And so like there's a that that kind of like thread where I think they're kind of touching on climate apocalypse as a piece of the sort of like apocalypse story they're telling was really very like poignant to me. I think that hooks in really, really beautifully with the way I think it's I think it's Brian who says basically like look like if things are broken you fix them like you don't you don't torch it and start yeah. over mm-hmm. you dig in and you make better the thing that isn't working and i feel like that sort of that mindset that there's nothing that isn't fixable if you kind of roll up your sleeves and try i think is is in some ways like one of the kind of overarching themes of of the of the entire series. You know, there's there's no disaster mm-hmm. so big that it can't be prevented by tapping into compassion and humanity. You know, like there's like the literal actual end of the world can be averted despite all of the forces of heaven and hell coming together, you know, by a group of children who are willing to sort of say like this isn't the world that I want to live in. And the power of imagination. <laughs> yeah. To, to conceive of a different way that the world could be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I love that. I also do think, just sort of circling back to, to pestilence and pollution specifically, now, I can't remember if it's in the book that, like, you know, pestilence, like, retired and sort of, like, handed the job over to pollution. But it did, like, it was a very American gods kind of moment. Like, it was sort of the most, uh-huh. like, this idea, which I which I love so much in, in American gods, of the sort of this, the notion that gods are created by humans' belief in them and, you know, and sort of the mm-hmm. kind of, the central conflict in that story is is the sort of the, the fading away and the erosion of the sort of like ancient gods and ancestral gods and the gods from the, you know, the old country of the immigrants and indigenous gods replaced by things like media and technology and the new forces that human beings kind of come to worship. And so I thought having sort of like having a little kind of touch point almost of that in this story was really interesting too, just sort of as a kind of like, I don't know, metaphysical linkage in the Neil Gaiman extended universe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But the sort of this idea that like, um, that the human mind is the most powerful thing in the world, you know, feels like, a um, a really interesting thread that kind of runs through, um, Runs like a, a lot of, um, I think a lot of his work, but in a really sort of lovely way here. And um, I think my last thing that I wanted to sort of note that I thought was interesting about pollution um, is that they were the only one of the four that was not gendered. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. Once I sort of clocked it, I was like, oh, this is a this is a they, and the narrator voice is using they. And I went back to check to see like, does this does the script use gender for all of them? Or, you know, and it, and it and it did like death and famine were male, and they refer to each other as you know as him and war was female and everyone referred to her as she and then pollution was a they the whole time and so I thought that was just sort of a nice like you know it wasn't like trumpeted it wasn't like a big thing you know I don't know obviously how the actor identifies but I liked that as a sort of a, a nod to having a cast of characters that feels a little bit more inclusive mm-hmm. I can remember from the book I, if we got genders for any of them I was like is was making war a woman a choice that they made there was like little things like that where I was like I couldn't necessarily remember sort of like what came directly from the text and what was sort of like real care on the point of the people making the show to figure out like what are 
as many places as possible where we can kind of like open this up and make make the casting and make the story feel more inclusive and more contemporary. But that was a detail that I really liked. I did too. And I'm pretty sure pretty sure in the book war is male. Uh I kind of thought that too. Like I I didn't I didn't remember clocking it as being female. And that that was an interesting choice to me too that like yeah. if you're going to pick one to make a woman, I liked that it was war because I feel like war being masculine feels like I don't know like way too easy. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And it opened up some really interesting space for the kind of um the juxtaposition of I think war versus pepper was sort of the most clearly delineated of all of the kind of kids with their horsemen archetypes you know like their, yeah, their little yeah, yeah. moment was really um was really fun so we, and we can go we'll come back to that yeah. when we get to the airfield stuff but um but yeah um anything more on on the on the horse horse persons horse persons oh yeah i yes. suppose we should <laughs> call them horse persons <laughs> um i mean you know i think death is a really interesting figure just because uh he although i feel like i should call death it um, it, you know, is, is really separate from them, but, you know, it, it, the way that the other three sort of worship it, again, the sort of nice touch of like, of, of what are these three concepts all sort of like focused on, um, where is their momentum always moving towards? What is the kind of like telos of war and famine and pollution and its death so it makes sense that like these characters would sort of defer to death as my lord and kind of their leader um because those concepts like like if you think about like the personification of war like it's always like the, the sort of point is always like death right 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 like bringing people to death yeah 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 exactly so um so that made sense and I, he kind of had that flavor of this death i think has that sort of flavor which is present in both neil gaiman's uh um oeuvre <laughs> um and terry pratchett's where death is very much a sort of neutral force like it just is you know like yeah death is death death kind of operates out a little bit outside of or or kind of like apart from the sort of moral universe of everything else around it you know like like the horsemen are personifications and can be sort of imagined away but death can't because death is just it just is um and all death is also not affiliated you know like death death is there it rides with the with war and famine and and pollution slash pestilence because with war and famine and pollution or pestilence comes death but he isn't like affiliated like like Death does not live in hell with the demons. Death is not affiliated with the demons. Right, right. It's not affiliated with heaven. You know, it's this kind of like amoral force, which again feels very Gaiman Pratchett. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's sort of every like whenever I see, whenever I hear death in this one, and I can't remember it was it uh, who's the actor who voices it's like a very famous guy who voices um, Brian Cox is the actor. Oh, Brian Cox. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. But I, uh, in my head, I always see the Death's dialogue in all caps, the way that it is in, like, the Discworld. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Discworld <laughs> books. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I'm like, where's Mort? <laughs> where's Death's assistant? Uh, <laughs> it's a slightly more whimsical death than this one, but, you know, uh, <laughs> we can pretend it's the same one. 
I my favorite death line was um, when he's like he's like don't think of it as dying think of it as leaving early to avoid the rush, <laughs> which is that is like such a Pratchett line like and that line yes, is in the book and, yes. I, and I I I'm so I I feel like every I re, you know you read that and you're like Terry Pratchett definitely wrote that line because that is something yes yes that exactly is something yeah. that the disc world death <laughs> would say for sure for sure yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, this is this is delightful. Mm-hmm. And I think that reflects the way that, you know, Neil Gaiman was like very careful and conscientious and wanted to try to like preserve as much of Terry Pratchett in the script as he could. Yeah. It was a nice little like, we miss you, Terry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Because it really liked that, that he kept that tone like so yeah. incredibly like it, like his both of their voices come through so clearly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think next we should talk about Heaven and Hell and Crowley and Aziraphale. In episodes four and five, essentially, you know, we have we have all these sort of different threads of these different sets of characters who are all kind of, you know, making their way towards this big kind of final confrontation where like all the characters we've been watching this whole time sort of end up in the same like in the same place but how Crowley and Aziraphale get there there's big parts of the story in those two episodes where they're kind of on the back burner because so much stuff is happening with the human characters with the kids in particular but huge 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 kind of thematic and personal and relationship stuff between the two of them happens kind of as as they both kind of go into essentially open rebellion. This is really where the kind of friction that begins and has been simmering in the first half, they both hit a place in the second half where it becomes clear that like, that it's not possible to sort of, to do it by half measures, you know, or to do it without kind of declaring themselves to be in opposition to their own side, you know, and even Aziraphale, for whom compliance and obedience and following the rules and this sort of voice in the back of his head that like, he doesn't really want to go against, you know, the big ineffable God plan. He's just sort of like, shaving away the corners a little bit here and there, you know, watching him reach a breaking point where he feels like he has to go rogue, essentially, is really fascinating. But I think it, he has a moment both with <laughs> like that hilarious scene where he and Gabriel are jogging. <laughs> Which I just want to send a shout out to Michael Sheen, okay. who jogs in character. Oh he jogs in character. So hilarious. And so He's, beautiful. Oh my God, it's so funny. <laughs> yes. Just it like, is so, like the oh. visual. I'm just sort of like <laughs> striding along authoritatively. And then, like, yep. and Aziraphale just like prancing, you know, just sort of like tiny little steps, like <laughs> looking like literally like someone who's sort of like, I have never jogged in my life and I don't actually know how to make this body. Do yes. That. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. And also, it was, there were so many moments, but that was one of them, too, where I just caught myself thinking, like, John Hamm was perfectly cast. I mean, like, like, every, every single thing that John Hamm is doing, 
every single time he is on screen is the perfect acting choice for that character. Like he, like the jog yep. is like, it's like, oh my God, a fucking, of course he jogs. Of course he jogs. Of course he's that guy, you know? Of course he jogs in a matching like sweatshirt and sweatpants. Yes, like exactly. Yeah. Outfit. Like he's in the fucking Like army. that's what he thinks blending in and being human is. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh my God, yeah. Uh. But I, I think, you know, with Aziraphale, it's like we watch him try a couple different times. Like he's so, like at the end of the episode before, right? Like the end of the first half, he's refused and he re- and he does it again this time. Like he's he doesn't want to just sort of like bail and run away with Crowley because he's just, he's just convinced that if he can get somebody upstairs in head office to take his calls, that this all still has to be fixable, you know? And, and so we watch him kind of keep trying, like, up and up the ladder. Like, you know, he has the scene with Gabriel where he's trying to sort of explain to him, look, you know, like, there was prophecy, like, this is happening, like, it's in motion, we can still stop it. And, you know, and, and Gabriel's like, we don't, who cares? We don't want to stop it. Like, this is, everything's working like, out why great. Why would we stop it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, what's like, how can, how can we win a war that doesn't happen, you dummy? Um, and then he tries again when he gets sort of the archangels come down to sort of like, you know, like threaten him like mob heavies. And he has sort of the same conversation with them. And like you mentioned before that he sort of brings up like, like, isn't the whole point of this to allow human beings the capacity to make choices? And so doesn't there have to kind of continue to be a good and an evil down here with them on earth in order for them to, you know, have that opportunity. And the angels are kind of like, mm, fuck you. We don't care about that either. Which PS is like, that's, that's a zero fail spouting, uh, like very Miltonian theology. Like that's the whole, the, if you read like paradise lessons, the whole thing, the reason why it's a good thing that, that human beings fell and that, that God isn't an asshole for basically like allowing that to happen and setting up humans to fail is that uh, in order for free will to be a concept, humans have to have a choice. And so he gave them a choice and that's, that's what makes everything work. So is there a fail out there being like Mr. Miltonian, like, but what about this? Yeah. <laughs> um, which might actually track with the people with, uh, you know, William Blake saying that Milton was of Satan's party, but didn't know it. So Xerophale <laughs> 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 is also of, of uh, Crowley's party. And he only, that's he knows true. it, but he denies it. And he, but he won't, but he won't admit it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah. interesting because it is very like, what I really love about the specific theology of Xerophel, you know, to me, like as somebody who, you know, is Catholic and like always been Catholic, like I think a lot of what I was sort of taught about how things like sin and evil and free will work, you know, it resonates with those things really deeply. Like I, you know, the sort of the way that Catholics handle things like the problem of evil, like why does evil exist? Why Mm -hmm. does God allow bad things to exist? You know, why, why is there suffering in the world? Why is there death in the world? Why doesn't God just sort of reach his hand down and like, you know, and stop Hitler or whatever? Like why, why did God allow Hitler to exist? And exactly how does that, his allowing that make him not evil? Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and so I think that like the way you know, I think in a lot of ways, like the conversations between Crowley and Aziraphale and their kind of 
philosophy, I guess, that they sort of both, you know, believe in and, and sort of embody, I think, like, resonates with that really, really deeply. You know, like Crowley saying, like, there are things that people gave hell credit for that were like, that was that was all humans, you know, like, they did that on their own. Yeah. But I think that that, like, you know, making a good choice, like, like, choosing to be a good person is a meaningless act if you don't have an equal option to choose to be a bad person. Otherwise, you're just sort of, it's just, it's just predetermined. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't say anything about you. It doesn't require any, anything of you. Like if there's only one thing to be, then being that doesn't tell us anything about you. Like it doesn't. Then it doesn't you're a Calvinist. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's, I mean, and maybe this is my like my, you know, Catholic bias showing, but one of the things that I sort of the, I think, biggest discrepancy is, I think, in, in some ways between Catholicism and, and some of those like sort of sects of Protestantism, where you're sort of like, like, where being saved, quote unquote, is like a thing that happens like either once or like before you're born. And then like, once it happens, it's like, well, either you're saved or you're not, you know, and, and you may or may not know it. But there's this tiny little group of people and it was like determined by God and that's sort of like all who's saved as opposed to, you know, kind of a like faith and good works sort of ongoing and continual human process that requires like, you know, like every time you fuck up, you go to a confession or like every time you do something wrong, you have to like try to fix it and make it right. So I feel like Aziraphale's, like the way he's sort of trying to explain to them, like, doesn't it make good more meaningful when people choose it instead of it being the only option that is available, you know, which makes it mm-hmm. not an option, which makes it just sort of like by necessity, that's what you are. And I think that like the, sh- the way the show illustrates that is by giving us this very sort of clear example of these characters who are sort of like, quote unquote, good in terms of being like on the side of God in, in black and white, who are not, you know, who are not people that we want to be, you know, like Crowley and Aziraphale choose to do good things, given a whole host of other options, you know, whereas like Gabriel is just kind of like plodding along. I thought watching Aziraphale, who up until this point has been so in denial about the degree to which he's sort of already been, you know, in in rebellion and just sort of like keeping it keeping it quiet you know like like from the from the first minute when he gives away the sword you know and then spends six thousand years lying about it (laughs) (laughs) like from the moment that we meet him he's sort of like he's on the fence about the idea of sort of treating humanity like this kind of faceless abstraction like we talked about last time like it's you know it's his human empathy that that troubles him at all these sort of historical moments along the way where it's like well I, I I guess like I guess if this Jesus person was supposed to die horribly I have to kind of stand here and and let it but it but it feels wrong like I don't I don't feel like this is a good thing but I'm also not ready to jump in and stop it yet you know i think by the time we get to the place where he sort of has conceded crowley's point that like there are no sides anymore there's the the two of them and humanity i think it sort of embodies that whole theology really nicely like aziraphale also has to choose you know yes definitely and aziraphale sort of still still embraces choice still has choice and enacts choice in a way that like you know one thing that that kind of makes um i think gabriel and the kind of you know party line heaven 
uh, angels with the demons is that over and over again, all of them deny choice. Like, they keep saying over and over to Aziraphale and to everyone else, like, what are you talking like? You know, when Aziraphale is trying to, trying to, you know, comes to, to Gabriel and he was like, I think the apocalypse is starting today. Like, what are we going to do? And Gabriel's like, cool, right on time. Awesome. Like, what do you mean we would do anything? Like, obviously. So there's a sort of way in which, like, he keeps saying, like, but what about this? But what about this? What, what if we decided to do this? And the answer is always like, well, no, there is no choice. This is just how it is. This is just how it's supposed to go. You know, so the denial of choice, like, I think the morality of this, of good omens is sort of like, ultimately what it comes down to is the good people are the people who embrace possibility and choice. And the bad, you know, are those who, who are, you know, the well, the people, I guess, it comes down to like, who's on the side of Armageddon? And who's on the side of life, you know, and it comes down to, again, that sort of like possibility and choice versus inevitability and, and denying choice. And I think like one, one of the like interesting thing about Aziraphale that kind of struck me this time with Crowley too, because and it, and, it, and it connects to what we saw in the flashbacks in the beginning where those sort of like the pattern of some of seemingly God's more questionable actions, like, <laughs> or le- more, uh, like, crueler actions, like, you know, Noah's Ark and uh, and all those things, where Aziraphale is sort of, like, trying to reconcile his discomfort. And Crowley's just, like, sort of saying out loud, like, isn't this wrong? Doesn't this seem like, this seems like something like, I, yeah. I'm supposed to be doing the wrong, right? Like, we're doing the bad thing, <laughs> yeah. and it seems like you are, but I don't really get, you know. Um, which kind of connects to like Crowley saying in this episode when he's kind of having his crisis, all I ever ever did was ask questions. You know, it's not so wrong. Like right. that's all I ever, all I ever did was just ask why, ask why this, why this. And then he kind of has that moment where he says like, God, show me your plan. Like, is this your plan? Like your plan was to test them, but don't test them to the end of the world. Um, and I think the interesting thing with, with him and Aziraphale, you know, kind of over on Aziraphale's side where like we see, over the course of the, I think, you know, mostly episode four, um, Aziraphale sort of like losing losing faith in the the kind of hierarchy that Gabriel represents. You know, what he becomes willing to rebel against is, you know, Gabriel and all those other angels sort of telling him like, get in line, this is what you have to do. And him sort of being like, oh, wait, you know what? Actually, I don't have to. Like, there's nothing stopping me from just, like, doing this thing over here. Um, But, like, throughout episode four, you know, what struck me this time watching it is that he never loses his faith in God, right? Like, he keeps saying, if I can just get to the right – if I can get to the higher authority, like, Gabriel isn't listening to me. You know, like, he just keeps saying, like, no, 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 this is the plan. We're going with the plan. Like, it's going according to plan. So everything, you know. Um, But he's like, if I could just talk to God. Um, and then it goes to Metatron. And the interesting thing with Metatron, you know, is like he, we get that that um, articulation from Aziraphale where, where Metatron shows up and he's like, are you God? And Metatron's like, I am the voice of God. And he's like, okay, but no, but you're like the spokesperson, you know. You're right, like, right, right, yeah. You're like the PR <laughs> flack for God. Like, right. <laughs> I need to talk to actual God, um, which, you know, which to me seems to signal like there remains something in Aziraphale that believes that if God, actual God, could could hear what he has to say, God would listen. You know, so there's something like there's a piece of Aziraphale's faith that remains unbroken. And, and I think this kind of connects to what you're talking about in terms of like, 
I mean, like, again, we've, we mentioned this last time, like, I'm not, I'm not religious, you know, I'm sort of like agnostic on the question of, of whether there is a God. And I'm certainly not a member of a, of an organized religion, but I grew up in organized religion and I'm interested in theology, but, you know, and like also being your best friend, like we, we talk about these things and I'm sort of like aware of these issues, but I think there's a kind of analog to the difficulties of, uh, or, or the sort of challenges of being a person of true faith and a member of an organized religion. You know, when you come up against the sort of like an organized religion presenting itself as God's way. And what do you do when you're a person of faith, like truly a person of faith who's been a member of that, that organization and your everything in your heart and your soul is saying, this can't be what God wants. You know, like the God I know, the God I believe in, what you're saying that God says doesn't sound like God to me. You know, and the kind of like struggle and difficulty if, 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 if like, you know, if, if think about like a zero fail as a person who faith who's like trying to, who has to kind of come to a realization like, oh, you know, like Gabriel and the hierarchy of heaven are not the same thing as God. And the right, thing that they right. are, the thing that they, that they worship and that they hold up as more important over everything else isn't necessarily God's will. It's what they interpret to be God's will based on this sort of set of very strict, stringent outlines and prophecies and so on and so forth. And so like the kind of commonality, I think, between Aziraphale and Crowley in their different ways, because Crowley, like even in that moment where he's sort of, he's saying, like he's he's recalling why he fell and saying, I only ask questions and, and, you know, pleading with God to show me your plan. Like, just let me understand. Like, Crowley still believes in God too. Like, that's a cry of faith. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's a yeah. fallen angel who's saying, like, who a piece of him never stopped believing, you know, never stopped loving God and just can't, just is like, what is that? You know what I mean? So, like, and this, they're sort of like the same on the level of, you know, questioning the structures around them and saying, like, okay, what well, this structures, this, this thing that's happening and the explanation that I'm getting from the powers that be does not track. But both of them also having this piece, you know, of sort of like, is this really God's plan? And that goes back, you know, to the premiere and that the sort of flashback to Eden where they first meet, where Aziraphale, like they're walking, watching them walk away and like Aziraphale's given them his sword and he's like, well, she was just like, you know, she's pregnant. You know, it's like scary out there. Like, I had to do something. And Crowley's like, so this is your God, like, this is the ineffable plan, huh? Like, this is, this doesn't seem this messed up. And, and Zerfield's kind of like, it, it does sort of seem messed up, you know? And Crowley's like, maybe I did the good thing. Maybe you did the bad thing. You know, what's going on? But I think it sort of raises that question of, like, that that's something that seems like, seems like, you know, it could be, look, on the one hand, it sort of seems to be maybe endorsing the quote-unquote demonic point of view, where, like, heaven is wrong and and hell isn't right but something like like the demon crowley maybe is right or something like that you know what i mean but like but i think what the the sort of series what what kind of opens up as the series goes on and culminates in that moment you know at the in at the end at armageddon when gabriel and beelzebub come up and team up to be like hey everybody what the fuck like let's get back in line we got to do this thing you know this is the great plan and aziraphale says but it is it the ineffable plan it is the great plan but is the great plan the same as the ineffable plan? So that that sort of seed that was planted, no pun intended, in the garden at the beginning of Crowley saying, like, uh, what what is the plan? Like, what exactly is the point? Like, 
Like, is the plan just to punish them, like create them to punish them and, and Aziraphale kind of being like uncomfortable with that, that schema, right? I think sort of by the end, we come around to a point where it turns out like Aziraphale and Crowley are the two who've always been right. You know what I mean? They've always maybe caught a glimpse of the ineffable plan in the way that everybody else is kind of caught up in the great plan. And that has something to do potentially with them recognizing that like with the fact that they're the two angels who recognize those unique gifts and possibilities of human beings. You know, that human beings have imagination, they see possibility, they make choices. Like, is like, is that the ineffable plan? The ineffable plan is creating beings with their own autonomy and their own ability to choose and and to choose evil for a while and to change their mind and choose good and pull things back, you know? And, and that, you know, like the war between good and evil, between heaven and hell as is like a metaphor, you know, it's like a war that's not like we're going to culminating battle and that's the end. It's like, no, this is just like a tug of war that is always going to go back and forth. And I think, yeah, so it's like seems to me that this sort of like the fact that Aziraphale and Crowley like are constantly questioning God, but not not in a necessarily – antagonistic way just in a kind of like i can't believe that you really mean this way you know what i mean right well no i totally agree i mean that's that's like this is why i I feel why i like why i get frustrated by i'm gonna talk about this a little bit last time too by by you know like religious people who interpret this work as being anti-religion or anti-god because i think i think you're absolutely right i mean i think what it is to me, you know, I, I mean, and, you know, obviously for everyone else, your mileage may vary because like, you know, I, like I'm Catholic. So that's sort of what I what I bring to this. But <laughs> but to me, I, you know, like like God does not at any point sort of step into the story and and make her grand plan known. Like what we know about God in in the universe of this book you know, it's is from the voiceover in which like the voice of God for the most part is like I mean it's it's is warm and and sort of very like affectionate towards the sort of foibles of humanity is much more like the God that Aziraphale believes that she is. Mm-hmm. Like this is a god who seems enormously fond of humanity, you know, in a way mm-hmm. where like Gabriel is sort of is like you know like he's looking at an ant hill, you know, like they're just like they're just a you know sort of a swarm of insects to him. And so to me, I feel like like looking at what we know of God as God, which is that like you know the voiceover structure of this show means that God is sort of talking to us directly. You know that squares with the way that Aziraphale you know sees the world, and and in many ways in the way that Crowley sees the world. But what has gotten in the way over time, you know, because of this sort of like unflinching and rigid adherence to you know to the sort of the plan for this war. By the end, like, they reach a point where, like, the war benefits Gabriel and Beelzebub. Like, like that is that is who this is for. It's like, we want to win. Mm-hmm. So we can feel like our side is the strongest. And what unites Gabriel and Beelzebub is that they are identical in that that status of being the winner 
is the piece that matters to them. And they're perfectly willing to collaborate mm-hmm. to get everyone to a point where they can have that kind of final sort of one-on-one contest. Like they are they are very much allies in that. You know, everyone's shitting on Crowley and Aziraphale for being friends. And they all, like everyone's right. got like, <laughs> you know, a counterpart on the other side. They, they, all, they all do Their it. Their back know. channel. Yeah, the back channels. But um, so I think, you know, if you look at it in the context of, um, you know, and this is something that like as a, you know, as a, 21st century gay feminist Catholic that I think about constantly. Um, if you if you look at it in terms of the ways in which people with their own agendas sort of, sometimes even without intending or meaning to, filter and reinterpret what God is saying to the people who sort of listen to them and believe them. Like, human beings are imperfect. Every church, every religious organization is made up of people, which means that it is, they're all susceptible to human failing. And so, like, you know, if you're, like, if you are a Catholic with a human conscience who, like, lives in the world that we live in now, like, there are a lot of times where... You know, it is very difficult for me to sort of look at this institution of which I'm a part and be like, I'm sorry, where again is your moral credibility <laughs> to tell us? Right. Yeah. What, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and and that doesn't that has no impact on on my belief in God. And it doesn't even really have an impact in, on my belief in the theology of Catholicism. It means this is an institution of people in a power hierarchy that has the potential to deeply corrupt. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think that, like, that's why I think Gabriel is so interesting. Like, Gabriel, to me, is, like, a sort of fantastically realized version. And because he's so funny, you know, I think it sort of goes down easier. He is every, like, religious figure who is so, who is, like, Anything that you do towards the ultimate goal of getting souls to heaven is the right choice. Yeah. You know, he's every missionary who goes to a developing country and does unspeakably horrible things to people who are, like, living perfectly normal lives before they came along to say, like, because the most important thing is to convert you, you know, or the most important thing is to bring more people into this church, to this institution. The most important thing is to be the person that they're yelling the loudest. Like, like winning is what religion is about. Our side scoring the most points is what this is all about. And when directly confronted, like when Crowley and Aziraphale actually ask him, like, do you have hard evidence that this is what God wants you to do? Then, like, like when mm-hmm. he sort of poked and poked, he is actually forced to admit, like, Gabriel also hasn't been able to get God on the phone. Like, it's not just Aziraphale, mm-hmm. you know? None of them have actual information. Even Metatron, like, everyone is sort of just repeating the talking points, so to me, it feels like the moral of the story, if you want to sort of be that <laughs> like reductive about it, is that like it is not possible to know. No one has a direct phone line to God's office, <laughs> you know, like not mm-hmm, even Gabriel. Mm-hmm. All we can do is sort of like do our best to use the things that, that we know and that we believe and just sort of like try to, you know, keep making the best choices that we can. But I think that, you know, like for Crowley, like the fact that just asking questions, like just sort of having like, and not even doubt, but just like kind of curiosity about sort of what lies outside this kind of black and white plan, 
that asking questions counts as a sin. That is also something that, you know, that comes up frequently in organized religion, you know, like that, that just expressing what if things were different? Or like, what if I read this passage from the Bible, and I have a totally different interpretation of it than you do? You know, like, what if, what if somebody is, you know, like reading Leviticus and and saying, well, what Leviticus tells me is that gay people are bad. And what if I read it and I say, well, what Leviticus tells me is that in, you know, zero century Palestine, when there was 12 guys living in the desert trying to get a civilization going, things like food hygiene and not wasting sperm were like survival tactics. And no one said in that <laughs> book we were supposed to keep doing that stuff 2,000 years later. You know, like, in fact, doesn't, doesn't, isn't like the, New Testament theoretically supersede the Old Testament? Like, wasn't that kind of yes, like the point of that is, New Testament? <laughs> that is, yes. This is, this is my beef with the Leviticus homophobes, is it's like, it is, there, there, are, there are very explicit points in the Bible where Jesus is basically like, okay, so we got way too into the nitty gritty of these rules. You guys got distracted. <laughs> Clearly, you can't function with a list of thousands of rules. I'm going to give you just one. It's one thing. You only have one thing to remember. Can you remember this one thing? One rule. Only one. We're not even going to do ten. We're just going to do one. You know. Um, <laughs> and and then it's just like and, then and that rule that is, don't be a dick. <laughs> don't be a dick, yeah. <laughs> so, I guess so. That's, so to me, I think that's why I like why I why I just like why I love Aziraphale so much and why I actually feel like I wish more religious people especially potentially even ones who who are worried that it contains in some way like an unchristian or unreligious or whatever message would watch it and engage with it because I actually feel like it's telling us something really important about what what in the best possible world faith is supposed to do, which is to shape how you engage with other people, you know, and and to shape the kind of world that you want to build and the kind of future that you want to leave for the next generations and and what it means to be a person and how human relationships and compassion for other people is so much more important than the dogma part of it. Yeah. I think it's doing something really beautiful and important by sort of, you know, giving us all these examples of like, here are like, here are the kinds of people, here are the kinds of forces that get in the way of our ability to sort of, you know, or sort of constant and ongoing, you know, like wondering like, like, why would God do this? What is God thinking? What does God really want from me? Um, and, and sort of accepting that like, it is, you know, it is very difficult to know that. And so we're all just kind of doing the best that we can. But Gabriel, like Gabriel's certainty, Gabriel's like utter unshakable confidence that he is right does not mean that he's right. You know, like in the end, mm -hmm. when he's sort of questioned on it, he's sort of forced to admit that he also has been kind of making this up as he goes along with no real hard evidence from God that what he was doing was was the right thing. He was making choices that were framed as being in service to God, but really primarily benefited himself. And that is a recurring tendency in, in religious people that I think that we all sort of have an obligation to be, I mean, and it's in humans in general, you know, an obligation to sort of be aware of, like, what are the 
what are the places where I'm convinced that I'm the person here who has absolute unshakable control over and knowledge of immutable truth. And I'm so sure, I'm so sure that I'm right, that nothing else matters, that I will just bulldoze anyone, anything in my path, because like, because the end is so much more important than how we get there, than what we do along the way. Like, it's just all about this end result. And I think that is like, a really destructive, but also really sort of like it's it's seductive to think that way. Like you can kind of understand, you know, like if you're just looking at like at real people in the world who sort of function like Gabriel does, it is easy to understand how somebody gets that way. Like if you, you know, if you believe that you're the person who has the direct line to how things are supposed to go, that you believe you're like, I am doing God's will. Like, of course it makes you ruthless. Of course you don't care who you hurt, you know? Of course you don't care about individual human lives, especially children, because you're just like, look, if all of you would just listen to me and just do what I'm fucking telling you, then we could have this war and then we'd win. And that's what this is all about. And, you know, and no other part of this entire 6,000 year journey has mattered except for this one moment. Yeah. And that's why I think that like the thing, the thing that makes Crowley and Aziraphale different and makes them, you know, so wonderful and beautiful is that every single human that they've ever come into contact with has mattered to them. Just for me, like, I feel like it is like, I love the theology of, of this world. Like, I actually feel like there's a lot in it that, that really, you know, deeply, deeply resonates with me. And I do think that it's something that, you know, if you're sort of just looking at it as like, oh, it's like, it's bad because there's characters who are angels that are depicted in a negative light. Then it's like, well, I mean, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like if, if that is, if that's as deep as you want to go, then sure. You know, if the angel Gabriel could sue them for libel, whatever, you know, <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, but the most important thing is sort of like, what is this asking us to understand about ourselves? And I think what it's asking us to understand about ourselves is that anytime you are so sure that you are right, that you don't feel like you have to listen to or engage with a different viewpoint that you think the very act of asking questions is dangerous and destructive, then A, then then you've potentially lost sight of whether what you're doing is right at all. And you're not open to the fact, you know, to the human imagination. You're not open to the fact that there are there are different other ways that the world could be. Yeah. And I think like I I sort of want to like spend a little time on the um the kind of like through line of imagination and creativity sort of being the being the thing that like that like literally saves the world, um, but that also kind of sets Crowley and Aziraphale apart and that 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 enables them to do the things that they do. Because I think like one thing that I kind of noticed that was like interesting, again, and sort of the 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 parallels between, you know, what Aziraphale and, and Crowley do in their kind of journeys to Tadfield. Um because if you think about it, like the, 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 the moment when, when Crowley's trying to escape the, uh, the ring of fire that he engineered around, um, yeah. London, <laughs> which is just like such a stroke of genius, you know, that like, that oh, like God, the, I love the that. M25 yes. is like, was created by a demon in order to like, to like be a prayer wheel for evil. Um, <laughs> which also I think like, you know, like, and the, and the, like, the cool thing with that too is like, I feel like that, that is it, in itself an example of Crowley's 
like creativity, right? Like all the other demons, like the way that they do, like, what do you, what do you do when you're a demon? How do you create evil? You go up there and you like tempt a person to have impure thoughts or you tempt them to do whatever. And, and Crowley is like, he's like, you know, like they all sort of stare at him blankly because he's thinking outside the box. He's looking at like, okay, like what are some things like tools that humans invented that I can turn against them? You know, like, well, they made cars and yeah, they made exactly. Highways. Yeah. You know, and like, what can I do to just like tweak this thing that they're making and like make it, you know, like evil? I can make a highway the shape of like a a glyph of a demon, you know, <laughs> and that'll sort of like produce evil in this new way. And the fact that the demons are so unimpressed by that is like such a good sign of the like the imagination that they lack. Like they don't get exactly. It. They yeah, like literally, like they're unimpressed because they cannot understand it because like he's because he's like it relies on like imagination on his on the ability to take you know and creativity, which is like the sort of ability to take a bunch of things and and look at them and be like, how can these be used in different ways? You know, like we've got cars, we've got highways, we've got computers, we've got like this demonic symbol. How can I like put these things together in a new way like that's a, that's a that's creativity you know but it's like a uniquely kind of human creativity um and uh and, and like that's the other thing like you know and and so when when he's stuck in the ring of fire and he decides just like fuck it i'm just gonna like drive through it you know with hasters like screaming all the way and god says god the narrator says you know the thing like what made Crowley able to do this is that he has something that no other demon has and that's imagination and so he's like the thing that makes this possible is he is just imagining so hard as he drives through the fire that the car isn't going to blow up that it doesn't you know like and it's sort of like this kind of neat way where it's like okay so the thing that makes Crowley unique is that you know sets him apart from like Haster is that he has an imagination he has the ability to believe something into existence that is that doesn't exist, you know, and like the the literal minded Haster is just being like, ah, I'm on fire. So like he dies. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, so so it's like what makes Crowley um, unique, but it also is makes him makes him more similar to humans, right? It makes him more similar to Adam. It makes him more similar to the children and that he's has this power of imagination, the ability to like come up with something entirely new and imagine it and, and you know and, and then make it make it exist in the world um make it a, a reality at least of some form um and then on a zero fail side i think like you know the the kind of cool thing is like after he gets discorporated you know after he like tries to talk to jod to to jod jod uh i guess that's like god with a with a soft g <laughs> <laughs> the jod of gifs. Uh, anyway, after he tries to talk to God, um, you know, and, and Shadwell accidentally sort of backs him into the circle and he gets discorporated up to heaven. There's that moment where, like, the the guy is yelling at him and he's like, you know, that he finally has this breaking point where he's like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do what you told me to do. And he walks over to the thing. He's like, how does this work? Like, well, whatever. I'll figure it out as I go along. And that, like, I think that the figure it out as it goes along, like, that is actually, like, winging it you know is like is another way of thinking about that is is like thinking creatively you know he's like the the protocols of heaven you know the sort of protocols of this hierarchy say to me like that's not possible well imagination makes it possible to do things that are impossible you know like somebody has to imagine uh going to the moon 
before like you get down to business of figuring out of like engineering your way into figuring out how it's possible. You know, like there is imagination involved in that kind of thing. And so like Crowley is or no, excuse me, Aziraphale being like, well, I'm just gonna get down there and then like like demons can can uh uh take over bodies, can I can um uh not occupy. What's the word? Possess bodies. So like I could do that too. So I'll just like I'll figure it out. You know, so like so the thing that gets both of them to Armageddon to be able to stop it is embracing imagination and creativity and the sort of ability to make something possible that doesn't appear to be possible. And I think like there's a, you know, like there's a kind of cool way to think about like if if like the great plan versus the the ineffable plan, right? Like if the great plan is like is like the lockstep hierarchies of good and evil having a war. Like the ineffable plan might be something like, you know, and if the ineffable plan is kind of on the side of humans and possibility and the children and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, if you think about like, like who's more like God, the rules lawyering, you know, angels and demons or the human beings and the angels who, who create things. Like God is like God by definition had created the universe. God is like sort of the ultimate force of imagination and creation. And so there's a kind of way in which you could say that like Aziraphale and Crowley are sort of like embracing a different kind of godliness in their sort of like, you know what? I'm just going to like, gonna make, I'm just, I'm just going to make it up. I'm going to make it up. I'm going to make something real that isn't real. I'm going to make something possible that didn't seem possible. Um, so like, that's like a really cool sort of thematically, like those little moments of them being like, I'm just going to like, I'm going to like imagineer my way out of this. <laughs> um, you know, like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> sort of thematically parallel to Adam as the Antichrist. I like having that ultimate power of imagination where what the, what, Hell needs him to do is to like, is to like dream Armageddon into existence, you know, the way that they've prescribed that he would. But the thing is, he can, he can imagine anything he wants. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be that. Like, he has this power. You know, and Adam also being the kid of, uh, who's like, they always say like, well, you may, he made up the best games. You're like, so the kind of like thread that brings, yeah, all yeah, that, yeah. Like, the common thread among all of these characters, Crowley and Aziraphale and Adam. Um, is imagination, right? And it's also a thread, I think, that, that kind of ties them to, um, Newton Pulsifer. Um, you know, where like, where, uh, uh, anathema is sort of like, like, I, I just do what, what the prophecies told me to do. And when I don't know what they t- are telling me to do, when I don't know which prophecy to pull, I don't know what to do. And Newton's the one who's able to be like, well, let's get creative. Like, what if you just, like, pull one out of a box? Like, what if that's just the way? Like, what if we just, you mm-hmm. know, there's sort of, like, yeah. so the thread among all, all the characters who wind up at the end being kind of, like, the, like, the squad that comes together to actually save things. I think the thread that kind of, like, the, the thing that they all have in common is this, this sort of, like, is imagination, you know, is that kind of creativity of different kinds sort of coming together and, and sort of like coalescing to a group of people who can kind of look around and be like, ah, uh, you're telling me this is the way it has to be. This is the only way it can go. But you know what? I can think of other ways it's going to go, you know, and I can do those instead. That's kind of the journey that Anathema goes on and, and her sort of decision at the very end, um, to, you know, to sort of to choose a different, life for herself is that she's very much been kind of, you know, in a, in her own way, 
you know, living like more like Gabriel, you know, in her mindset than Aziraphale and Crowley, because her entire life she's been sort of brought up, you know, with this understanding that like, you know, that there is like there's a grand master plan and you know what your part in it is. And we, you know, our whole family for hundreds of years has known what your part in it is going to be. So you have to just sort of go there and, you know, do the thing. Um, and and because she's been not that she doesn't have an imagination, but that she's been taught to suppress it because all the answers are in the book. Another, you know, nice metaphor for contemporary religions and it's sort of yep. foibles it's like you, you know <laughs> yep all the answers are in the book you don't have to use your own mind or heart or care about human relationships you know so that's why for example like she can't she doesn't figure out that it's adam even though there's things about adam that are a little bit odd um until newton shows up and says i'm here looking for adam young who lives on hogback land and she's like wait what what? No. What? That kid? I know him, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she's like, but he doesn't look like what I expected. Right, right. Like, I had a picture in my head of, like, a thing, a beast, a demon, you know, whatever. Um, But but because, Ag- like, like, anything that Agnes didn't tell her, she doesn't know, you know? And, and so she, like Gabriel, is making choices about how to proceed based on what she thinks Agnes was trying to tell her, what she, what she and, you know, and the, the whole kind of device line were, were under the impression was what Agnes was trying to say when Agnes, in fact, didn't say that. You know, Agnes didn't say it's going to be a great big hairy beast with giant fangs and jaws. You know, that's just what Anathema, like, what she thought that she was looking for. So she can't see what she's actually looking for. And I think also, you know, it kind of gets her closer to, I think she has to move. She has, she's, she sort of thinks she's relating to Agnes's prophecies the way that Agnes is, Agnes intended. But if you think about Agnes, you know, so she saw, like, she foresaw her own death. You know, she knew she was going to die. Like, she knew they were going to come for her and, and burn her on that day. And so, like, she knows that for a fact and she doesn't, she doesn't stop it. But she does, like, she makes a choice about how, like, knowing they're going to put me on a fire, I'm going to stuff my dress with, you know, gunpowder or nails. Like, she, like, Agnes has that kind of, like, relationship to her prophecies where it's, like, they're true, but not true in a way where, like, I don't have a choice about how I respond or, or, or how, uh, ways that I can sort of, like, behave in the situation, you know? So I think it's, like, interesting that Agnes, or that, that anathema also has to come to that sense of sort of, like, you know, like Agnes has sort of said, like X Y Z will happen, but that doesn't mean that you just have to sit around and be like, okay, waiting for Agnes to tell me what happens. You know, like you can see, like this is going to happen, and they be like, all right, in response to that information, here's what I'm going to do. You know, here's how I'm going to respond. To, here's what I'm going to like leverage in the situation. Exactly, and it also doesn't mean that, um, like, like you can you can interpret what a prophecy means, and also what it looks like when that's coming true can be completely different than the picture that you had in your head, which is sort of shaped by your own, you know, kind of perceptions and human limitations. And that's why you know that's why she panics when she loses the book. Like she doesn't like she fundamentally doesn't trust her own abilities without the like the book is kind of a crutch for her so when um you know so when she leaves it in the car and doesn't have it even though you know she has the prophecies memorized and she has the whole you know box full of index cards and all of these tools and all of these skills and her whole life has been leading to this moment you know there's a part of her that's like can i do this without without the book here in my hand sort of to you know to guide me and um 
And the, because the book in some ways, it's like, you know, she feels like she has a relationship with Agnes. Like Agnes is telling her things, you know, like Agnes would have told me if this was to happen. Like, yeah. And she know. thinks that the book and Agnes have full authority. Like this is like, I have yes. to mm-hmm. listen. Like what I do is determined by the book. And so she, which she has to sort of like unlearn that automatic, like, like basically she has to like figure out like she has free will. Right. Yeah. Like she, it, she's not, it has not been like part of her experience that her own choices or opinions matter at all you know like that she's just sort of like i'm here to kind of execute you know some steps and so it takes somebody you know like like newton a complete chaos agent you know um, (laughs) definitely chaos muppet and order muppet pair there yeah totally yes my favorite (laughs) chaos muppets and order muppets my favorite relationships um like you know he has to come along and you know and sort of both teach her that like that she has the capacity, like, that she can do this without the book, you know, like, that she has the capacity within her to figure out how to stop this, you know, on her own because of who she is and all the things that she's learned. Um, but also that, you know, that the way, that sort of, the way to make the thing happen requires that she sort of improvise and go off script, you know, um, and uh so like you know so i just so i think that that's i think the sort of the parallels throughout the show but particularly in the second half between you know the people who to some extent are just following orders um or or sort of adhering to um a past way of doing things, you know, like Gabriel and Beelzebub, but also Anathema and also to a certain degree Shadwell. Um, and, you know, all these people who are sort of like, I have this framework for how the world works and I only operate within that framework, kind of putting one foot in front of the other. And the idea of going outside of that um, is terrifying. And so I, I kind of can't entertain that possibility. And then you have people, you know, like, like Pulsifer, like Crowley and Aziraphale, um, who kind of come in and the, and the kids, you know, who sort of say like, hey, like, like, what if, what if things were different? Like, what if things could be different? Um, you know, and, uh, and so I think that that, like, the linkage between the sort of human characters and the divine characters um, being so much less about, quote unquote, good versus, quote unquote, bad, and more about, like, free will versus prescribed kind of predestined like your path is already laid out for you is inherently a lot more interesting and um and i think you know the fact that the end of that the end sort of leaves it open for like you know anathema accepts like she she makes a choice that she doesn't want like that there's a different way to be you know, like, like there, there is a manual, you know, and she doesn't want to look at it. Like there is a, there is another set of prescribed steps and on behalf of not just her, but all, all of the rest of humanity that, you know, that she feels like, you know, it's better to, to not know, you know, like it's better to, um, to just sort of trust yourself and, and kind of, you know, test your own merits, I guess, you know, so I, so I like that, but I also, but I do feel like it's a, it's a nice kind of human allegory to what's happening between like Gabriel and Aziraphale too. Yeah. And I think also to kind of 
you know, move to Adam and the them a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, in that sort of framework, I think that's one reason why the thing, what Adam does when he is, when he has sort of, when he is at his, at his most antichrist, you know, when he is sort of, um, he's, he's floating and his eyes are glowing and he is like consciously bringing about the end of the world when he is being the, the antichrist that he's quote unquote supposed to be according to that kind of like, uh, Gabriel Beelzebub system. Um, you know, in that, in those moments, the most evil thing that Adam does is take away his friend's free will. You know, like that's, that's the thing that that's the, that's the evil thing when, when he is evil, when he is like the embodiment of evil, what he does is override his friend's free will. He doesn't let them go home. You know, like he makes them walk with him when they don't want to. He takes away their mouths when he wants them to stop talking. He forces them to smile. You know, those like horrific, like fake smiles that he plasters on his yeah. face. He, he, he stops looking at them as other individuals, as his friends, and looks at them as beings that he can sort of force into, at least outwardly force into doing uh, what he wants them to do or stopping them from doing what he doesn't want them to do. You know, and it doesn't feel like a coincidence to me that that is the form that his like evil impulses take, uh, is to sort of strip away the free will of, of these human beings. And under the guise of that he, that he thinks, I mean, very similarly to, you know, to Gabriel, like, it's because he believes that he knows what's best for them. Like, he, he doesn't think that he is trying to hurt them. He's like, no, we're having fun. This is going to be the best day. Like, you just need to trust me that I know what's best for you. You know, in the same way as Gabriel saying, like, you know, everyone just needs to just do what I'm telling you to do because making this war happen is like, this is, this is what is for the ultimate good, you know? So I think that like for Adam, you know, he like, it doesn't like, it's like, this is, you know, like this is how, this is what it looks like when a real human person, you know, who, who comes into some degree of power abuses it. It's like very, like very few people who do evil things, think of themselves as evil. Like they, there is always a reason why, you know, why if people would just do what you tell them to do, if they would just obey you without question, that you're like, no, 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 I can like, just let me do it. And then like, I will make your life better. You know, like Adam's saying, like, just, you know, just smile, just do what I'm telling you to do, just play this game with me, you know, and we're all gonna have the best time. Like, this is, you know, like, just burn down the world with me. And then like, I'll give you each a continent to rule, like, we're gonna have a blast, you know. Um, and that's why I think one of the one of the little moments that I that I really loved in that um in that whole sequence, like when he finally lets them go and they and they run away and he's chasing them, um, the fact that the dog goes with the kids instead of staying with Adam was really, really potent. It's like both both as a sign of how thoroughly the dog has been, for lack of a better word, humanized, you know. Um mm-hmm. Earth small dog eyes. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> small dog eyes. Yeah, has sort of like has has its form has shaped its nature. So it is now, you know, I mean, if there's any hellhound left, it is very much in the, you know, it's enough in the minority that that kind of um deeply sort of spiritual psychic link that's supposed to exist between hellhound and antichrist has snapped altogether. Um 
And also that like, you know, that when he when he's chasing them and, you know, so it's like, like, I want my dog back and back my dog. And then Pepper says, like, he's not your dog. He's his own dog. Like even the dog deserves the right to make choices. Like even the dog deserves the right to go where the dog wants to go, you know. And um, so just that that's that little moment of like how how sort of this severing of this tie between dog and master and that kind of unquestioning, you know, loyalty that this creature is supposed to have. Like, the hellhound also is a creature who is supposed to be following predetermined steps, you know? And, um, and, and in that moment, yeah, is, is, you know, has, has become, has become a creature who is, you know, free to make their own choices. And that, and that, that, and that, that for Adam becomes part of sort of the realization that things are slipping out of his control. You know, it's like even, even the dog would rather go with Pepper and Wensleydale and Brian than stay with its, you know, ostensible master because the dog also can sort of no longer recognize the Adam that it had a relationship with. Like the dog is also scared, you know? The thing that actually saves the world, because like only, ultimately only Adam can stop it, right? Like he, I mean, he brings his friends and they, and they participate, whatever. But like the first thing that has to happen in order, in order to avert the apocalypse is that like, the Adam has to stop being the Antichrist and go back to being Adam. And I think, and so like the thing that I love about this, you know, show that I think is like so poignant and I, um, <clears throat> and I think there's like, again, a kind of like there's a thread that runs through all of the storylines of this is that ultimately, the thing that like that that brings Adam back to being Adam, you know, that that kind of like averts the him from just like full on antichristdom is his love for his dog and his friends. You know, like he was going to end the world, and all he wanted was for his gang to stay. And like he tried the the sort of antichrist way of going about that, which is like whatever, I'll just get rid of everybody. I'll get you new moms and dads. You can each rule a continent. It's going to be great. Um. But when his friends walk away and say, we don't like you anymore, we're going home, we don't want to play with you, the, f- the, the like genuine love that Adam has in his heart for those human beings and for that little dog and his desire to maintain a relationship with them and his realization that he, that he cannot maintain a relationship with them by taking away their free will and forcing them to comply with the, whatever he wants to do. That's the same thing that literally saves the world is him realizing like, I love these people. I want these people to love me. I want them to keep loving me the way that they did. I tried to take away their free will and force them to comply. And all it did is alienate them. So, so the thing that I need to do is let that go and apologize to them and try to stop this and go back to being me. So like literally love you know, like love for another, for other beings, for other human beings. Like that's the, he chose, he chose humans and he chose the human part of himself, which I think also comes around at the end when, you know, um, what does, what does Aziraphale say? He's not the, he's not like the embodiment of all that's evil. He's the embodiment of all this human or something like that. Um, he's hum- like, human incarnate. Yeah. Human incarnate. Yeah. He's not evil incarnate or good incarnate. He's, hu- he's human incarnate. Um, yeah. And then also at the end, the sort of like the other theme is like when his father, Satan comes up and is sort of like, get back in line. He's like, you're not my father. You know, like he has two fathers. He has a, he has, you know, his satanic father and he has his human father and he, and he has a choice, you know, like he has a choice because he's a human. He has a choice. He can choose 
his antichrist side or his human side he can choose his his satanic father or his human father and he chooses the human side he says my father is the human man who raised me like that's my true father and because he's the antichrist in that moment he says it it's true you know so um but i think like the love part the fact that it is his love for pepper and wensleydale and brian and dog like that is the thing that is most important to him ultimately like the 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 Armageddon served them in his mind. And as soon as he realized that it wasn't going to serve them, he chose them. Um, I think is like, just like super, like, like beautiful, you know, <laughs> I'm just like, yes, I love this. Part of it too, is the realization that you cannot authentically love somebody if you are controlling them. Which is also interesting if you think about God, the role of God in this and the God that God is so hands off, you know, and like Gabriel and all them, they're trying to control what happens and control humans. And like God is not stepping in. But if it, like if from that framework that loving, you cannot love someone and control them, the fact that God is so hands off and is sort of allowing choice to humans is, you can see that it's like it's a sign of God's love. Huh, exactly. Yeah, like it's it's all it's sort of yeah, that's kind of yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's you have to you have to allow them to be free to be whoever they're going to be and and if you are moving them around like pieces on a chessboard, that's not a relationship. Yeah. And so I mean I guess it is a little bit also like, you know, a parent parent to a child relationship in the sense of like you have to let your children make mistakes, you know, like you're not actually doing them of any favors by like trying to to manage their life. If you like, but loving them means like letting them sort of do things that may or may not work out, you know, like make, make bad choices sometimes. Um, but I think the other, like the, the sort of the, the cool, th- you know, th- the through line of love, I think is like really present in all of the storylines and sort of like more, more overt ways with Newton and anathema, you know, where they're sort of like, well, populist is coming, we might as well bang, you know? So, like, part of, like, their story is, like, them coming together has to do with them sort of finding a love with each other. But I also think about, like, I think that's also true in Crowley and Aziraphale's storylines as well. You know, if you think about the way that, like, like Crowley – and this is just, you know, like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some shippy flailing here because, like, it's just so beautiful. But that sort of sends of that way that, like, <laughs> you know, that, like – when Haster and uh, Liger show up um, at Crowley's apartment, you know, and he's kind of like, he, like sits looking bad and he gets the call from getting the call from Aziraphale, kind of like gets his mojo back to sort of like set up the the trap for them and all that um, and all that jazz. Um, but then also just thinking about like, like the, the, the loss of faith and hope for Crowley um comes when he goes to the bookshop like the moment when Crowley actually stops fighting you know because like he was thinking like all right fine whatever I'm gonna leave you behind like angel you know like I'm gonna go to you know the nebula and never think about you again um (laughs) uh like he doesn't actually give up then you know because like he keeps fighting he he like sets up the uh you know they like he like he gets rid of Haster and like he goes back to get Aziraphale again and then like when he sees the bookshop is is has burned down and Aziraphale isn't there and he thinks he's dead like that's when Crowley gives up you know like that's when he just goes to a pub and like start is just drinking bottles of whiskey and he's like oh well I guess you know like Pox, you know, Armageddon is coming. So, like, well, there's nothing I can do. And, and when Aziraphale shows up, you know, like when he gets back down, he can hear him again. Like, that's like the thing that gets Crowley back up and in the game 
is Aziraphale. You know, it's like that connection to Aziraphale. It's like Aziraphale is alive and well, and he's coming back and he's trying to solve this. You know, and Aziraphale's got a plan. Um, that's the thing that makes Crowley kind of go like, okay, like we can do this. Like that's what gives him the sort of mojo to imagine his way through the ring of fire. Um, so in a very, very real way, you know, I think like the sort of particular love for another person or people is the thing that kind of like, you know, like it's like creativity and imagination is necessary, right? But like creativity and imagination is also like a function or, or connected to or sort of enabled by sort of connection and love for another being. Um, and also as just a kind of complete aside, every time I watch the part where Crowley rolls up in the flaming car and like Aziraphale in uh, Miranda Richardson goes, oh, Crowley, you know, he's like so happy. And, Azir- and Crowley goes, hi, Aziraphale. Like they're so happy to see each other every single time. My oh, heart, my God. My heart melts like every time. It's just so <laughs> sweet. <laughs> I something else that I loved about that too that I I thought was a um just sort of an uh, a lovely little sort of detail about the the relationship between Crowley and Aziraphale going sort of coming from a from a soul deep place as opposed to just sort of being in their kind of human bodies is the fact that Crowley instantly recognizes that that's Aziraphale in a different body. He's like, oh, like, I, you know, I'm so happy to see you. I see you found a rod. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't bat an eyelash. He's like, that, you look, you look nice in that dress. Like, he doesn't, like, he, he doesn't need to, like, have it explained to him. He doesn't need to hear him speak. He just sees, he sees Madame Tracy and he's just like, oh, good, Aziraphale's here. Like, and I just, like, that, the sort of the subtlety of that, that sort of reminder that they're, you know, they're, they're, supernatural beings whose, you know, whose connection goes deeper than just sort of, like, physical body and physical body means that, like, of course he can recognize Aziraphale in any form that Aziraphale is wearing, you know? Um, And I just thought that was really, that was really lovely. I love them so much. Uh, (laughs) This is just sort of, like, a weird transition, except for it's, it's the sort of segue in my brain is, is the, um, Aziraphale and Madame Tracy thing, you know, which is, again, Miranda Richardson cannot get enough praise for being able to play those two characters, like, so smoothly back and forth. Like, just, like, mannerisms and everything. Like, she's amazing. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's also interesting, like, like, even, like, when Aziraphale and Crowley show, first show up at Armageddon, right? Like, when they roll into the army base and the kids are lined up on one side, you know, and, and the, and death and the three horse people are lined up on the other. Um, as, you know, Crowley and Aziraphale's first move, like, there's still enough sort of like, um, locked into the heaven hell framework of how they think things are going to work that they're sort of like cool we're here okay kill the antichrist like like that's what we do it's like that's that's what we got to do like the the way that we solve this yes. is uh-huh. you know, eliminate uh-huh. the threat all right here we go and so like another like thing that i think is really like a, a sort of neat little note is that moment where like um you know where like what crowley is like like, all right, is there a fail? Like, do it, you know, like grab the, you know, they're like, all right, shoot the child. And Chadwell's like, uh, wait, what, what come again? Like, I, I'm, I, what am I supposed to do? And so like, you know, a zero fail takes away the gun. And so you have a zero fail in Madame Tracy's body, 
like going to shoot the Antichrist because Crowley and Aziraphale are still just like, this is the solution. There's one solution. The solution is kill the Antichrist. And there's the Antichrist, so kill him. And, you know, and the thing that saves them, because again, like, you need to have the Antichrist, like the whole thing that would be also would, would keep falling apart if they had done that, you know, the thing that saves him, saves them all is Madame Tracy, the human being, looking at Adam and recognizing the human part of Adam, looking at Adam and seeing like, that's a little boy, you know, like that's a kid and I can't shoot him and taking over the body and sort of like pulling back the gun in time to save him, you know, long enough so that Adam can be like, you should be in two bodies so that Aziraphale and Crowley can kind of like reassess and realize like, oh, hey, wait a minute, actually turns out like Antichrist is on our side, you know, like this is like, we just need to step back and let these kids, you know, let the them take care of things. Um, but like the thing that allows that to happen is the humanity of, of um, Madam Tracy recognized the humanity in Adam and being like, all right, Angel, you know, like, like you're wrong on this one and I'm willing to take over and kind of and and stop you from making from doing the wrong thing and shadwell too like like the gun only ends up in madame tracy's hand because like you know like like aziraphale essentially drags shadwell you know all the way out there like we got to go hunt the antichrist and you know and and convinces him you know to like get down you know the 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 chekhov's gun from the wall you know like great grandpappy dalrymple's witch hunting gun whatever um you know so shadwell roars up there all ready to be like yes like my day has come you know my my magic finger and i are gonna like you know um are gonna completely like you know we're gonna get a chance to finally like you know destroy an evil you know witchy creature and then he gets there and it's a kid and he can't do it you know so like arguably you know his whole his whole sense of his identity as a witch finder you know his whole sort of life and career has been in some ways like leading up to this moment of being given the opportunity to destroy um, an evil supernatural being who's about to do something terrible to the world, you know, as far as he understands it. Um, And even he like faced with that, like he can't fire the gun. And so Aziraphale has to take it. And then Madame Tracy, you know, has to sort of get, you know, like, go crazy and, you know, like, take over, basically take over the driver's seat, you know, and stop him. Um, But I think that it is, I think it's really important in that moment that it's, like, everybody who's there who's a human being um, can see, like, can see the human being in in Adam. You know, Shadwell and Madame Tracy see it, Pulsifer and Anathema see it, um, you know, the kids see it again now that he's sort of gone back to being himself. Um... And, you know, and I think that 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 recognition that his that his humanity is of more value than than the abstract goal that could be served by killing him, you know, I think is like, I think that's the thing that Aziraphale and Crowley needed to be reminded of, you know, they're still not humans, you know, <laughs> you know, they're they still need they still need humans to actually do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this exactly. Thing. Well, since we're already at Armageddon, do you want to talk more about like exactly how that goes down? Yeah, let's let's sort of let's now that we're all at the at the airfield. I do. So first, the one thing that I do want to remark on that just 
completely delighted me is that when everybody roars up to the airfield, the security guard is reading American Gods, which I loved. That was like, yes, that was a, that was a lovely <laughs> little nod. Greatly delighted cute. me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, so, you know, so one of the things that I, um, that, that is, that is really fun kind of all the way along, you know, through the course of the, of the whole series, um, that we encounter in lots of different ways is all of the different sort of seemingly meaningless things about, um, how, how human history has unfolded or how the world has been kind of set up to, to move the pieces into place for this sort of final, you know, showdown. So the fact that there is this like, um, you know, like military airbase with, you know, secured computers that connect to nuclear warheads all over the world in Tadfield, <laughs> sort of like the implausibility <laughs> of that, you know, being something that was sort of like, you know, laid out from the beginning, um, you know, I mean, we're sort of like bringing all, like all the different sort of storylines kind of converge, you know, in this one place. So we have, you know, we have the four horsemen, you know, c- going head to head with Adam and the kids. We have Pulsifer and Anathema, you know, down working in the, you know, the computers, but also then kind of coming up sort of to be there for the end. Then we have, um, then Beelzebub and Gabriel show up. Then it's like every, the, the whole, you know, the entire ensemble kind of comes together in this, you know, in this one place. But I think that it's interesting that like the, um, you know, you have all of these sort of, you know, supernatural and incredibly powerful characters and sort of, and figures that are sort of lined up and everyone is kind of standing around waiting to see what the child is going to do, you know? And, um, and that sort of reminder that, you know, that the most, that at this moment, you know, the most powerful, like, like all of human history has been like, you know, like, like carefully structured by the forces on both sides to lead all of these people and beings to this exact spot on the globe at this exact moment in time so that X can happen. Um, and yet, like, there's nothing they can do if Adam decides that that's not what he wants to do. Um, I mean, I think something that, like, like over the course of this, of the whole series, but the second half in particular, I think something that I, that's really, really enjoyable is sort of watching, like, watching the increasing frustration of both the the heaven side and the hell side as they begin to realize that they're um like that that all they can do is kind of you know yell like that they that they can't like that they're actually <laughs> sort of powerless you know like the whole like Haster at the plains of Megado is so funny when he sort of realizes like that he has been completely played you know and and has like you know and and is all that his power has sort of been taken away from him. And then watching Gabriel just like screaming at this child and talking to him like a, you know, like, like a child. Um, and, you know, and everyone, and Beelzebub being like, don't you want to rule the world? And he's just like, mm, no, fuck you. Like this sort of the realization that, that they all have that like <laughs> the, the power they've accrued over, you know, like since the beginning of time 
like is now meaningless because there is no force in the whole entire world that can make this kid do something that he doesn't want to do. And they don't know how to like, they only know how to talk to him like themselves, like angel and demon, you know, like black and white and, and just push and push and push. And, you know, and that's, you know, as anyone who has ever met a child knows that is not how you get an 11 year old to do things. (laughs) Exactly. And I think like all of that actually makes it even more, you know, sort of like appropriate and uh, meaningful that when push, you know, when the battle happens, Adam doesn't fight it. You know, when it when the battle comes, he turns to his friends, you know, his human friends. And he says, you know, like, Pepper, you want to stand up to to war? You know, like you like do it you know so it's like so even in the moment you know where it's like the pitch battle and it would seem to be the moment where he should sort of seize that power and that authority like that he would be the one to beat them he actually sort of steps back and lets his friends sort of step forward and and fight those battles not in a sort of like he's like you know avoiding the fight and letting them take the risk but in a sort of way where he's like handing over the power to them which is the part that, like, Gabriel and Beelzebub just, like, cannot understand. You know, they're just like, wait, what? Like, no, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be, like, the thing. You're like, don't you want to be, don't you want to do this? Don't you want to, like, you know, rule the world or or fight us or something? And he's just like, meh. Um, so, yeah. So, like, so, so you know, allowing sort of Pepper to to step forward and say, like, I believe in peace, bitch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I would just, I would die for Pepper. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I love her so much. My mom says that war is just the masculine imperialism played out on the globe. I was like, oh, my God. Exactly. This is the best yes. It's like, I love you. It's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> you know, and they're just sort of, and again, like, the world is saved by that, like, that unique, like, skepticism of the the intelligent child, you know, where like adults grown up is just like, well, but don't you know this is how it is? And the child's just like, um, sounds like <laughs> bullshit to me. So no. <laughs> My mom says this, so no. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. Um but yeah, you know, so the so the, the fact that like that Adam in that point where he like he has the powers of the Antichrist, but he is sort of choosing to be Adam you know, in that moment, can kind of look around and be like, it's not just me, it's me and my gang, you know, and like, and I'm so I'm gonna like, I'm gonna like turn to my gang. And I like, I know what they can do. Like, I know what they like, I know each of them has something in them that is gonna make it pop, you know, that that like my friend Pepper, like 11 year old girl Pepper, fully human, no powers can step up to war and be like, I don't believe in you, you know, poof, gone. Um, Handing that power over to humans, I think is kind of like was is the ultimate move. Like, that is the thing. Like, the reason it undoes the apocalypse is because the logic of the apocalypse is, you know, it's a war that is sort of, like, kicked off by the Antichrist and fought by angels and demons. And he's like, nope, A, I'm not kicking it off, and B, I'm going to, like, hand things of the power over to human beings. So, you know, like, fuck you and your, like, your hierarchies of power and your expectations and your prophecies (laughs) and so on and so forth. (laughs) You know, I think what I... What I love about that is that, like, that's a, you know, because of because of the sort of, you know, human imagination and human creativity and and Adam's, you know, Adam Adam choosing his human side, you know, the the fact that the children are 
you know, are willing to fight against these sort of huge, terrifying forces. Like, like, that's an outcome that, like, nobody could have predicted that. You know, like, the not the horsemen, not Gabriel and Beelzebub, like, nobody, no one who wasn't a human being would have seen coming that, you know, that children who, like you said, like, who don't have any powers would, you know, would be both brave enough to make that choice and that Adam would rather you know, empower them, like would rather give them agency than, you know, than destroy the whole world on his own and then hand them each a continent to rule. Like the, like actual power versus control power, you know, um, like when he's in his antichrist self, he thinks that, you know, he thinks that giving his friends power, giving them something that would, you know, make them feel strong and badass and awesome, basically, yeah, like to torch the world and give you, and you can you can have a whole country, you know, or have a whole continent, and um, and they recognize like like that is not like that is still control, you know, like like then one of them I forget who it is asked them like like okay like so like if we're ruling all the continents like what are you ruling, you know, basically like you're still ruling us, you know, like you're still at the top and we're subordinate to you, even if I'm in charge of all of Europe, you know, um. And, and so, so the, the, you know, that sort of, that recognition on his part that like, you know, that the only way that he can really demonstrate to them that he has seen that and learned that is that, you know, he has to step back and allow them to, to do things and make choices, you know? And, and so I think the fact that like, you know, I mean, like, he obviously, like, he has this sort of, he has the kind of climactic final, you know, showdown between, like, him and, you know, him and Beelzebub and the sort of, and the kind of the father question. But, um, but the fact that sort of that the first, you know, the first blow in the battle is struck by Pepper, um, you know, matters a lot, you know, and, and I think that that's part of, part of Adam's journey of proving to them that, like, that they and their relationships with him and with each other are are more important to him than than anything that Gabriel or Beelzebub or anyone else can promise. And and they just like it's that's something like they just they just they cannot comprehend that. It has never occurred to either of them that you could offer somebody control and dominion and power over the whole entire world and they would not take it, which is an which is interesting when when you sort of lay that side by side with the little kind of um drive by mention that you get in in episode three that Crowley was the demon who tempted Jesus in the desert. You know, like that he offered him like all you know, like I like I offered him like control and dominion over all of the, you know, kingdoms of the world and he said no you know like i think that like that little sort of like christ to antichrist parallel of like of choosing choosing humanity and relationships over um you know dominion over the kingdoms of the world is a choice that they have both made you know jesus was being tempted by you know by satan i you know i like Crowley sort of representing, you know, the side of evil um, and Adam being sort of tempted by both of them, by both Beelzebub and, you know, and um, Gabriel together. But, but that's a, they were both given the same offer and declined it, you know? And I think that that sort of, um, I think that little parallel is kind of interesting that like, that there are, 
um, that that human side coming out and sort of saying like, no, like I don't, you know, being a, being a tyrant is not of interest to me, you know, um, when like the creatures who exist in the hierarchy, that's all about power, um, and all about, you know, who's on top and who's winning and who has control and who has dominance over whom, um, like it, like Gabriel and Beelzebub fundamentally can't comprehend that there's anything a person could want that isn't winning. Like they don't even, they can't even conceive of what good would look like that isn't just winning a power struggle. Which is why, you know, sort of the, the kids stepping up and being like, we re- we reject your whole paradigm. <laughs> You know, like, and, and Adam being like, all I want is I just want, like, my woods and I want my dog and I want my friends and I just want this world where I can, you know, be happy. Um, like, they, they just can't even conceive of that. Um, should we move? Uh, do you have anything more on the, on the, on Armageddon? Um, no, I don't, th- I don't think so. I think, I think we have. I think we have covered all the things. So yeah, so maybe maybe now we can kind of we can jump to the sort of the the post Armageddon kind of um, you know how how everybody ends up afterwards. Um, I think um, you know the the sort of the human stories. I think all you know um, like the sort of the you know the love stories both wrap up in a in a very sort of sweet and lovely way, you know, I think, um, like Shadwell, you know, like both, both Shadwell and Pulsifer ending up in love with witches, essentially, is sort of a fun little, like, <laughs> little twist. Um, and Shadwell in particular, like, you know, Madam Tracy finally being like, you know, I am done leaving food in the hallway for you. You're going to come over here and sit down and eat a meal with me, like a normal, normal human being, you know, um, that was very, um, very sweet. And I also, and I really liked the, um, the resolution between Pulsifer and Anathema, you know, her sort of, um, you know, that the, that the sort of this, that the second Agnes thing, you know, like, like the book we've had the whole time. And then at the very, very end, we also get the box, you know, the sort of second mysterious legacy of Agnes, um, which is, you know, which turns out to be like a, you know, another book that this is that we learned that this is something that like, you know, that that Agnes also predicted this, you know, that she knew that the world was going to almost end and then not. And then here's sort of like volume two of, you know, humanity and um, and just, you know, an- anathema is sort of the kind of weariness that sets over her when she opens it and like the sort of look on her face where you sort of see her going like, <sighs> okay, like, here we go again, you know, and, um, and that, that sort of realization that, like, she doesn't, that there's a piece of her that kind of already knows, like, I don't want to have the rest of my life be sort of repeating the same steps, you know, and so I think what it, what it kind of costs her, um, you know, in terms of sort of her relationship with, with Agnes, with that sort of sense of purpose that she had, um, you know, like that, like it's a, it is a real loss, but it also like burning the book without reading it, you know, without, without, you know, tearing out a single page. Um, like the way that we sort of see that 
free her to have a different kind of life and to be a different kind of person and to be sort of the agent of her own destiny, I think is really lovely, you know, and I think is, is sort of a nice kind of human scale moment that sort of, um, that, that kind of uh, sort of like a microcosm of the big sort of heaven, hell, earth kind of, the way that those sort of forces are so triangulated, like it's really, it's embodied really nicely in Anathema, who's kind of like, you know, like what, what Agnes predicted will probably come true regardless because she's, you know, she's sort of the one kind of accurate predestination force. But if you don't know, if you're not sort of like, if you're not marching towards those outcomes, you know, if you're making choices and those things just happen, then, you know, then you're, then you're living your life with more agency, you know, and, and that opens up the possibility that like, you know, like the, the whole world could be different, you know, like, like Agnes could end up being wrong, you know, but either way, anathema isn't, isn't sort of enslaved to there only being, you know, sort of one thing that the world could be like only one thing that these things could mean. Um, so I was, I was very happy for her. Um, I, I mean, it did also feel like potentially, you know, like, are they sort of leaving it set up for like, is there going to be like a season two or a sequel or something, which the, the book does not. The book sort of wraps it up and it's kind of like, that's the end of this, you know. Um, yeah. But I mean, um, there's also that line between Aziraphale and Crowley that's like, uh, where Crowley says, you know, I think the, the next war is between all of us and all of them. And so, <clears throat> which also felt to me like leaving it open for uh, another potentially like another series. And I think, you know, the burning of the book is one of those things where it's like, if they wanted to, like they could go for it without any, you know, it's like we have to do this again without without any prophecies. But that's it's also the kind of thing like easy to retcon where like Agnes, of course, would have known that, that you know, that an right, 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 yeah. burned the book. So then she mm-hmm. has another book that she wrote down that she said exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, no, really, yeah. here you go. <laughs> yeah. um, so like, that's, that's the thing. Uh. That's, that's something that if you wanted to, you could you could sort of walk back exactly. if there if there is you know another series. Yeah. Although I would be perfectly. I mean, this is. I, I think I think more TV shows should be you know open to the possibility of like stories come to an organic ending, and even if there is more money to be made by artificially prolonging it, that's not always the best thing for the story. You know, like if the end of this story is Crowley and Aziraphale, you know drinking champagne in the Ritz and toasting to the world. That's a perfect, beautiful ending. You know, like I don't, I don't need there to be more to it than that. But, um, but yeah, but so I like, so I liked how they, how their story sort of, you know, the Yi saga continues and Anathema's like, well, you know, then let it. Um, uh, and, and then Adam too, like I loved, um, you know, Adam, like, stealing an apple and breaking out of a garden being the ending of his story, I thought was also, you know, was really lovely that we sort of begin and end with gardens and apples. Um, and, and the line about the, um, there never was an apple in Adam's opinion that wasn't worth the trouble you got into for eating it, which just is like, (laughs) it's so beautiful. And so like, that's our whole story. That's where we've been this whole time, you know? Um, so yeah, so I thought I thought all of the this really sweet, heartfelt, lovely, um, you know, he, focused on human relationship endings for all of the for the people characters. I thought I thought was really I liked all of that. 
Yes. No, I, I thought so too. And I, and I like that, you know, like you could see Adam returning to being a son, like submitting to being grounded, you know, like it's if, for having been the Antichrist and having, you know, like it kind of like drives home, like, like the meaning of giving up the possibility of, of, you know, like ultimate power, right? Like is like, well, now you're grounded because like, right, right, you, yeah. <laughs> you broke into an American air base and, you know, like, and you're an 11 year old boy. So you have to listen to your parents, you know? Um, so, and, and then like his attempts, like he cleans, like he's, he's trying to be, he's making choices, trying to be good. Right. You know, which I think is like a really sort of, um, like very, very meaningful thing to see from a kid who was literally just the antichrist. But then of course, like he is like a, He's, he's still got like a little bit of that kind of like demonic like nature. He's got a little, got a little crowley in him maybe when he's outside with dog and it's like, don't run out or I'd have to chase you. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, but like, I mean, like that could be crowley-ish. It could be, or, or it could just be 11 year old boyish, you know, like it's just. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and I think with the apple too, where there's a kind of blurring of like, like, Maybe whether you see it as a sign of like, you know, that he was the Antichrist or a sign of that he's, that he's 11 year old, a sign of his humanity of just being a little, like the way that humanity will always blend the good and, you know, the evil and the good, you know, the potential for each, the potential for both and the possibility always of choosing which side you're going to be on, like which rules you're going to break and why. Um, you know, I thought that was like a nice, it's like a lovely little ending with a little bit of ambiguity. Um, but Crowley and Azuraphail. Uh, I <clears throat> like re again. This is one of those things where rewatching it was great because I actually the first time I watched it is I hadn't I hadn't well, like I said I I listened to the audiobook of uh the audiobook like a year ago or something like that and somehow in in the interim when I first rewatched I had forgotten about the like identity switch so um so this is one of those. This is one of those things where, like, the first time I watched it, it completely worked because I did not pick up on they that they weren't each other. You know, like I was watching Crowley in that um, that holy water, being like, "Wow!" So you know, I guess it's like something fundamental about him is his his like being his change, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's like exactly. Oh, yeah, right. They swapped him. But then you know, like as we were talking about, you know, at the beginning, like, like this is this being a series that really like not only holds up on rewatch, but actually like in that way that like really well crafted series do is better on rewatch is like knowing that coming back into rewatch and knowing that it's an identity switch, like it, it was immediately clear. Like all the things yes. that in my brain just sort of skated over, like, like Aziraphale as Crowley in hell coming in and being like, hi guys, nice place. You could use a plant, you know, yeah. like once you know that's Aziraphale, it's like, of course, like when you think it's Crowley, you read it as sarcasm. Like, oh, Crowley just being sarcasm. Uh -huh. And once you know it's Aziraphale, it's like, oh, it's Aziraphale being uncomfortable trying to figure out like, uh, guess I'll say something polite to the demons. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> it's just like so perfectly done, both in the performances and in the writing. You know, it's like it works both, like it completely works when you believe that it's them and it completely works when you know that it's not. Yes. I had the exact same experience because like I, I had like, I, I mean, I have not reread the book in a really long time. And so I had, I had entirely forgotten that that was the end of it. And, um, and I, you know, and the, and so the, the last episode, like the, the very beginning of episode six is a flash forward to Crowley's trial that sort of leaves on this kind of cliffhanger moment. Um, and I had this moment of being like, like, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that they end up like okay and alive at the end like i'm i'm pretty sure this is not the kind of story that's sort of going to like gratuitously kill off its protagonist for shock value but i'm just enough uncertain about 
whether or how that's yeah. going to happen that I was very, I was extremely <laughs> nervous. Um, but, uh, and I, and I've, and I've having forgotten that like the, you know, that the sort of, that the way, um, that they, you know, that they know their own sides well enough to, to predict exactly how, again, how, how unimaginative and sort of like plodding along, you know, like following, you know, sort of the predestined things, like, like how, how obvious that choice of a punishment is and how then easy it must have been for them to be like, oh, okay, so here's our, like, you know, here's how we're interpreting, like, you know, and again, this is like, I like sort of, this is Agnes's last prophecy, you know, this is the last, the last piece of the book that comes into play is, you know, when, when Crowley tosses the book to, um, to Anathema when he sees her at the airbase, um, and then the little piece of paper flutters out to Aziraphale, it says, choose your faces wisely, you know, um, and uh, and that little sort of that realization of like, OK, so they're, you know, like they're going to come for us. They're going to, you know, they're going to come find us and we have to, you know, be we have to be ready for that um, because they sort of knew going into it. Like, we know this is exactly how, you know, how they're going to do it. They're going to, you know. And they're thinking that they're being really creative, you know, like, ooh, we're gonna, we're going to make the punishment, you know, fit the crime. We're going to team up with the other side. But it's like, of course, like. Of course, Crowley and Aziraphale knew that they were going to do that, you know. Um, so just sort of as a, like, as a, as a really fun little reveal of the fact that, like, they're, you know, they were sort of one step ahead the whole time. Because, again, they're the ones that have, that have imagination. Um, that made sense. But, yeah, but I think, but, like, when you, it really is, is when you go back and, like, when you watch it again and you can hear... Like, you know, you hear Crowley's lines and you can hear Aziraphale saying them, which is just a masterful writing trick to to have these two characters whose personalities are so different, whose, um, whose speaking cadence is so different, whose acting choices are so different. And yet you can write a line of dialogue that both sounds completely natural when David Tennant delivers it as Crowley and completely natural. If you imagine Michael Sheen as a Xerophil delivering it and vice versa, it's like, it's really extraordinary. The level of, you know, of detail and you have little things like, um, you know, like, like a Xerophil as Crowley asking for a rubber ducky in the bath, which was hilarious. And then Crowley, yes. <laughs> and then Crowley as a Xerophil, you know, going blah, kind of like breathing fire at the angels. So they kind of like jump back. <laughs> You know, which, which in the moment, you know, like sort of read as like, like how, you know, as, as kind of a sort of, um, you know, like funny little sort of fuck you moments, you know, trying to like, trying, essentially trying to scare both sides into motivating them to like, you know, leave us alone. But they don't read as like huge red flags. They just sort of read as like, these two characters having rubbed off on each other, you know, like Aziraphale, like, like I believed in that moment that, you know, after having successfully managed to like avert the apocalypse and having sort of planted his flag and declared what side he's on, um, that Aziraphale would absolutely, you know, have sort of, you know, absorbed enough, you know, demonness or humanness or whatever that the fire wouldn't hurt him. And that he would also be willing to sort of, you know, like openly be a dick <laughs> to his former coworkers. I was like, I yeah, like, I I absolutely believe this. 
I I totally believed it. Like it completely tracked for me. It completely worked. And then when you know that it's like that it's actually like the switch, then you're like that also completely like like that is that is like how a good twist should yes. work. That like yes, it works exactly. completely if you think it's going straight, all of it tracks and it works. And when you know that the that it's a, that the twist is coming, it's still all of it works. You know, it's like yes, exactly. Like a good twist yeah. should be like one of those like like one of what do you see the vase or the faces? You know, like like um uh like uh Trump Loy things where you can see either one and either one is gonna work. Um, yeah, and and uh, <laughs> I also just like love I love how much fun that they have. I also really love um. Like how Michael coming down to hell and like walking through the hallways of hell in her like little white clothes, like, of water. And, like the way that she holds out her hand while she's pouring it, yep. you know, like looking like a, like a medieval <laughs> painting or a tarot card or something. Like like Michael yeah. is so prissy, you know. It's just like yeah, yep. <laughs> I also my other my other favorite Michael moment with like Michael in hell was like was when um. Was when Beelzebub was like, you know, like, it's not that we don't trust you, but obviously we don't trust you. So, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, I, exactly. I think, like, sh- shout out to Anna Maxwell Martin, who is just, who is a, a truly, truly wonderful actress who's been in a ton of stuff. But I love particularly like I'm a huge fan of of the Bletchley Circle, which she's just she's just wonderful in. But like she's she's such a great example to me of like, um, you know, this 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 cast is just stacked with actors who have all been like, you know, leads in other things who are gleefully playing, you know, these like tiny little weirdo bit parts in this and just having the time of their lives. You know, like the fact that she's like, you know, like like she's wearing a a bug head you know in the airfield scene like a hat that's like the head of a fly and then she has like goo dripping down her face and like flies pushing around in like the world's most unflattering haircut and she's just listening back to being like uh uh trial of crowley blah 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 um and i was just like this is just like i'm just like i'm so happy for you because i can tell that you were having like you love your job so much today and that's wonderful you're like just like chewing that scenery um but um, yes. but I love that. It's like that. John Hamm, where I feel like like John Hamm. Oh like, yeah, John Hamm is a, is a really great actor. Like I mean, he was amazing as the lead man, you know, as Don Draper. But in a lot of ways, I feel like John Hamm is happiest when he's playing like a weirdo side part like this. You know, where he can just be like, my job is to like embody your asshole boss, like yep. the the quintessence <laughs> of asshole corporate boss. Yep, and like I'm going to ooze it out of my pores. In every possible way that I can, in every moment. And he's just like, you could just like, the amount of fun he's having with it is like palpable. Like you yes. can, like you can touch it, you know? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. They did, they really like the casting was so great. And, you know, he's, John Hamm is a, is a, I think is a perfect example of a sort of a very specific type of actor that like, that pops up once in a while where, like, where the fact that they are, extremely conventionally attractive limits like can can risk limiting like the ability of you know of the artists that work with them to recognize like the actual the real breadth of their range you know like i think like once once everyone discovered that like i mean like it's it's i mean 
Well, I mean, like, we, you know, like, we, we hate him now because he's an asshole, but, like, Alec Baldwin, like, like, you know, the youths today do not remember <laughs> the era in which Alec Baldwin was, like, you know, a hard-bodied action hero, you know, like, like, he was the first Jack Ryan. He was Jack Ryan before anyone else was Jack Ryan. He was, like, you know, in The Hunt for Red October, he was, like, like lean and muscled and abs and handsome and kick ass and like that was the Alec Baldwin that we all came up with in the eighties, you know. Um, and it he wasn't- was the reason why the term for a like a hot guy in Clueless is was a Baldwin. Baldwin. Like that yeah. was referring to Alec. It wasn't Stephen, yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, um, but I think you know he's like he's a really interesting example of like it's you know because he was famous as an action hero he got invited to do things like host Saturday Night Live and people realized he was funny and so then when he aged out of being an action hero an entire second career opened up for him as a funny guy you know and um and John Hamm I think is so interesting because like he like you said like he you know he had he had a whole entire series in which he was like the leading man and the central protagonist you know in this very complicated drama and yet since that then you know a- almost exclusively what he's been known for has been playing like comedy weirdos you know um and yeah. <laughs> um and I so I think that it's like and he's like so he's perfect at sort of disappearing into a role like this like he's I think he's so much more of a chameleon than than you might give him credit for if you only knew him from Mad Men you know um but um but yeah but I just so I think that the you know one of the real I think brilliant aspects of of the writing of this is how um you know how many actors with like extraordinary screen presence sort of disappear into these these roles and just like become like I mean like Miranda Richardson is like amazing and everything but like like he's like watching her play like like for, like watching her do the like uh, in the séance she's like seven different people yes. you know she is she's yes. both yes. she's both yes. human madam tracy and she's human Madam Tracy faking the little Irish girl spirit guide. And then she's yeah. <laughs> and then she's Madam Tracy authentically channeling at like Aziraphale trying to get like, you know, like trying to get a phone call through. And then she's Ron. <laughs> You know, <laughs> screaming at his wife to shut the fuck up. Um, you know, like it's like the the and and you're and you're not aware as you're watching it. Like you're not thinking, like, wow, Miranda Richardson is a very skilled actress. You're watching it and you're thinking, like, oh my god, chaos at the seance. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, like exactly. All hell you're breaking like, loose. You're like, holy shit, that's Ron. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> and like I think that the the like. The, like, ease and fluidity with which it, she does it, you know, like, it sort of masks the, like, extreme difficulty and high level of skill it takes to actually pull that off. Yeah. Without, yeah. With, like, making it look so, like, fluid. Or the, the, all the times when she has, like, she is having a conversation, like, Madam Tracy and Aziraphale are having a conversation inside her. Like, she does that. And you believe that they're two different beings, like, conversing with each other, with each other inside one body. Like, like just the way that she could like switch back and forth, not just the voice, but also the sort of like facial expressions. I mean, like it's amazing. And I think also like one thing I do think, I kind of I think the sort of John Ham 
uh, factor is also, I think, the case in, in terms of like sort of you have an actor who is like both like really like a like a, a, a dramatically accomplished um, actor, you know, who's done, like done sort of like major leading man dramatic parts and also a really, really skilled comedic actor, really funny guy. Like that's also true of David Tennant and Michael Sheen. Yes. Like both yeah. of them are like are very, very talented and accomplished dramatic actor who's done who've done all kinds of like major roles, both on screen and on stage. You know, like David Tennant is like he's like a Shakespearean actor, you know what I mean? Um, but also actors who are extremely funny and extremely talented comedic actors. I don't you know, not a lot of people exist who are like equally good at both. But I think this is like the you know, the the casting of this was genius because I think this series doesn't work. Like Crowley and Aziraphale don't work if you don't cast actors who are like, who can pull off both. Like you need the actors who can, and like specifically you really need actors who can be funny while their characters are not supposed to know that they're doing anything funny, which is like a special kind of skill. Like, like a zero fail only works if you have an actor who can be hilarious while playing a character who is completely earnest, you know? Like a zero fail jogging in character is hysterical, <laughs> but it only works because a zero fail has no idea that he's doing something funny. Yes, like, he's exactly. running. Yes. He's just like being yeah. himself. You know what I mean? Like he has to be 100% earnest. 100% like dialed in, you know, like you have to have the actors who can pull off both sides, um, which is very rare, but like they really like the casting was just like so amazing. Cause like they found, they found actors who could do all of that. And then of course, like Michael Sheen and David Tennant just have that like unbelievable chemistry, you know, like, like they are actors that like they have the kind of chemistry where like you watch them on screen and you're like, yes, I believe that they have been each other's like best friends and like basically soulmates for 6,000 years. I 100% I have like everything about the way that they, interact everything about like the way that they behave their like sort of body language towards each other like yes like six thousand years you are my only friend that i believe it you know <laughs> yes exactly oh my gosh yeah and then like and i just and i feel like the um like i think you're totally right that it like the the comedy of i mean and it's like and it's the you know like it's the same in the book too like the you know the the thing that makes like Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's writing so funny when they're writing things that are funny, you know, like it's, it's, um, you know, it's absurdity and it's language and it's situational. And it's sort of this, like this deep, deep love for kind of the like quirks and foibles of humanity, but none of it is like, you know, like mugging straight to camera, you know, like none of it is like, none of it is, is yeah, sort of yeah. easy one note jokes like that and 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 so i think you're i think you're right that like the thing the thing that makes the funny things in this show funny is like you know which is sort of in some ways like like the key to really great comedy is you know is that truly comedic characters are always trying like it is it is their most it is in their most serious moment that they are so funny you know like it that's why like you know you have characters like um you know, like, like Dwight Schrute, you know, like, like the, the whole, their whole arc is being just like, like pure deadpan, you know, and, and the, and the jokes are sort of in, like, them in reaction to the world. And it's never like, waka waka, like, we're like breaking the fourth wall and like, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> um, 
you know, and, um, and so I think that, like, that's, like, with what this, you know, what this show does really well is, like, like, the comedy comes from, like, you know, earnestness, you know, like, like, Pulsifer trying so hard, you know, to, like, fix things and then just, like, ruining them, you know, or, um, you know, or this, like, Aziraphale's sort of, like, you know, like, fussiness and, like, Crowley thinking that he's so cool, you know, like, it's, they're all, like, like, it's, it's them taking themselves really seriously and thinking that this moment is serious and important that makes those things inherently, you know, funny. Like, it's just, it's just a masterclass, I feel like, on, on, on writing with, with subtlety and nuance when you're, when you're writing about things that could be, like, big and ham-handed and clunky, you know? Like, you have to, you have to make those points, you have to hit that stuff really, with a really, really light touch in order to make it work. Um, yeah, but, like, the comedy thing, I feel like it's, like, the reason why, like, you know, Monty Python's Ministry of Silly Walks sketch works is because that when you're first introduced to it, when you see, like, John Cleese doing that, like, ridiculous walk, he is stone-faced. Like, he is, like, like, this is, this is just how this guy's, this is, he is, uh, you know, like, a bureaucratic functionary in the British government, and this is how he walks, and there is nothing funny about it, you know, like, there's, like, no one in that sketch takes it seriously, and that's what makes it funny. If everyone was like, oh my god, my walk, you know, like, it wouldn't work at all. Um, so it's that, it's that, like, deadpan sort of straight, uh, thing that, that, that really makes it work. And I think, you know, and like yours, like it kind of extends to like you were saying, like the major kind of like big themes. Like if they were like, do you get it yet? Imagination saves the world. Like they, it would be like, yeah, yeah, shut up. Got, you know, like it wouldn't land. Right. Like it has to be done with like a really kind of like light, subtle touch. Um, it has to be sort of like come organically out of the story rather than be like, you know, like this is a parable, right? <laughs> like, like that's the thing. So this is not a parable. Like, this is not a, this is not a religious text. It's not. Re- it's just like it's sort of. This is a story about humans, ultimately. Like that's what it is about. You know, and God is a character in it. You know, like God is a sort of a factor in it, but it's really sort of centered on on human beings. And yeah, yes. Um. All right. Any other bits and bobs you want to cover? I do, I do just want to, just because it, it warmed my heart, I do want to just sort of remark upon the, um, the, you know, the, the last scene where they're, um, where they're having lunch at their Ritz and, and toasting to the world. And I, um, and I just, the, I just really love the line where, um, oh yes where they, um, you know, where Aziraphale says, you know, like this, you know, none of this wouldn't have worked if you weren't, you know, like at heart just a little bit of a good person. And Crowley says, you know, none of this would have worked if you weren't at heart, like just enough of a bastard to be worth knowing. And I just felt like, like that is the most, that is the most perfect and beautiful and wonderful, like non, I love you. I love you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like I just, you know, I I think it's, and then the song, you know, a nightingale sang in, Mm -hmm. in, Berkeley Square, like I get every single time I get misty. Like I have yes. mostly with like shippy feels. Ugh, and this yes. is probably because like there's another I have another ship from like way back when and I have a friend who wrote like a, a fanfic about them and there's like a whole thing involving that song and so like it's like it's like cross ship feels. Oh you know? yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm simultaneously mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. massive like BBC Robin Hood Robin <laughs> Marianne feels and also like Curly and Azira fail feels. It's actually like a really kind of strange thing to be happening inside my like there's a lot of like sort of odd cognitive dissonance going on there but <laughs> it gets me is what i'm saying <laughs> uh, no i believe it yeah 
But yeah, I love yeah. But I love that it. <laughs> I thought that was just such a like a beautiful note to end on of the sort of reminder that like what makes them like what sort of what shapes their relationship and what makes the story worth telling and what makes them people that we wanted to get to know is that sort of like that reminder, you know, at the very, very end that, um, that being, you know, that like encompassing all of those things, you know, like the being a little bit of everything and that being sort of Mm -hmm. fundamentally human is like, is the, you know, is the, is the the great virtue. I'm sorry. I'm so distracted by your cat. All I can hear in the background is meowing. (laughs) (laughs) My my cat has decided that it's time for me to feed him. It's actually like <laughs> 45 minutes before official dinner time, but that's about when he starts. So everybody just ignore Oliver in the background screaming his head off about dinner. <laughs> We're trying to have a serious conversation here, cat. There aren't even uh, any cats in the story. No, that's true. There are no cats. <laughs> But only uh, dogs. The dog, for once, is actually being good and not bothering me. <laughs> I've probably just jinxed myself. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's all I uh, have. Um, yeah. Do you have anything that's else? All I have too. Cool. Um, so, uh, so we will um, we will be back um, probably probably a. a a week ish from from when you all are listening to this podcast with um our our next installment um in our meditation summer vacation binge uh, which is Russian Doll on Netflix. Aaron has seen it, I have not. Um and we're going to do sort of the same format with that that we did with this, which is we'll do one podcast on the first half and then another on the second half. Um which is I think it's eight episodes, it'll be four and four. And yeah, and are you are you uh, are you gonna finish it all before we are you gonna? Are you gonna I be think like I'm gonna only watch the then... first half. Okay, cool. That's a, that'll be fun, actually. Yes. Then, like, we can talk about it, and and you can speculate, and I can like like put my put my hands over my mouth so I don't give anything away. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, because it is, yeah, I, I like to, I like to not know. So yeah, so we can, we can kind of have a conversation up through the sort of the midpoint and then, and then wrap it up. And then, um, and then we'll do the same thing and, after and that. And anyone with, who wants to watch along. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and like I, so the last one we're doing is Gentleman Jack and I have not seen that and Claire has. So I'll do the same mm-hmm. thing. I'll, I'll watch half and I won't, you know, and then we can, so anybody who wants to watch along for the next, after this one, we're going to do, it's going to be the first episodes of, uh, first four episodes of Russian doll, which they're, they're short. They're like half hour episodes. Um, and, uh, and the podcast will be spoiler free for the second half. So yes, exactly. You can count on uh, that. Cool. <laughs> All right. Yay. All right. This was Thanks for joy. listening. This is so much fun. Um, I loved, I have loved talking about this show with you, Erin. It has been lots of fun. <laughs> I love talking about this show with you, with, with you, with you, Claire. Whatever. I love Claire <laughs> is the point. <laughs> uh, I love Claire too. <laughs> Hashtag Claren. Hashtag Claren. <laughs> well played. The thing we have in common is that we both love Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all, right, all right, everybody. Bye. We will see you next time. Bye.